I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I am a huge fan of podcasts myself, guys. I've been listening to podcasts for many years. And one thing that's always driven me crazy is the lack of the ability to get the resources and links of things that are mentioned during the interviews. I just, you know, I get to the end of the interview and I'm like, oh, what was that book that I wanted to get or the supplement or whatever it was that they were talking about? And I oftentimes just kind of forget about it because I have no way to capture that information. So I've hired a team of people that meticulously go through each and every one of my interviews and create really great show notes with clickable links that will send you out to everything that was discussed in the episode. So if you're like me and you're multitasking and you can't really do two things at once and listen to a podcast and stop and look something up, don't trip. I got you. Here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. That's lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. And every Tuesday... I'll send you an email with an announcement of that week's podcast. And in that email will be all of the links, discount codes, anything that was discussed in that episode that is clickable, searchable, something you can go learn more about. So go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. I promise not to spam you with a bunch of trashy emails. I really just send out announcements when I've got an event coming up or a podcast release or something of that nature. I'm not a big guy for spamming and sending tons of emails. If you don't want to go to the URL, you can just text me. Text the word lifestylist. That's all one word, all lowercase, lifestylist to this number, 44222. So text the word lifestylist to the number 44222 on any US phone. That'll work. And uh, you'll get a sign-up sheet there where you can uh, sign up for the newsletter and get the same damn thing. So lukestory.com forward slash newsletter or text lifestylist to 44222 on a US phone. All right, folks, I'm about to bust out one of my secrets here. You ready for this? People often wonder how I'm able to record sometimes three or four podcasts in one day and stream them all on social media and do all the crazy things I do. If you follow me on Instagram, uh, my life is quite busy and somehow I managed to keep it together. Well, my secret weapon, or at least one of them, is the Four Sigmatic Lion's Mane Coffee. Now, I don't always have time to brew up some whole beans, put them in the French press, put the butter in there, do the whole thing, make myself that fatty kind of elixir. But what I do always have time for is to bust out one of the little lion's mane coffee packets from Four Sigmatic, throw that in some hot water, even sometimes when I'm like in a rush and just need to make things happen, some cold water, shake it up, stir it up, blend it up, and I'm good to go. Now, what's cool about the lion's mane coffee is that it's an instant coffee, but it doesn't have any of the toxins of like your grandma's like Folgers instant coffee. By the way, don't ever eat that stuff. Super, super toxic. (laughs) Instant coffees are generally really bad for you, but not this one. What's really cool about the Four Sigmatic instant coffee is that you get get like a, a balanced stimulation. So it's coffee without the jitters. The lion's mane sort of calms down the hit of caffeine. So that's why I really like this product. Um, This has been used for a long time by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. And this is just a beautiful mushroom and a modern day favorite for someone like me who likes to get creative, but also stay focused. 
And all of Four Sigmatic's mushrooms are dual extracted, meaning that you get the water-soluble and fat-soluble nutrients. And in non-geeky terms, that just means that they're really badass and that they do it right. So if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend you do, here's what's up. You go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. If you throw some of that Lion's Mane coffee in your shopping cart and then enter the code Luke story, you're also going to save 15% off. That's foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. Your discount code is also Luke story. Enjoy. It is now time for me to roll up my sleeves, throw on some rubber gloves, and deliver to you Katie Wells, a.k.a. Wellness Mama. We're going to be talking today all about raising kids, childbirth, all things related to being a parent. And um, if you happen to be a papa and not a mama, I want to remind you that this podcast will be essential to those of you that have kids and happen to be male or those of you that plan on having kids. Because if you don't do it right, you might script the future of mankind. In addition to this week's episode, I'd like to invite you to join me next week for a sleep special called Hacking Hibernation and Biohacking the Bedroom with Todd Youngblood from ChiliPad. That is a dope episode, especially in the middle of summer when sleep kind of tends to suck, at least for me, because I'm always too hot. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I could move somewhere other than Los Angeles and not have that problem. Uh, However, next week's episode is going to really help you sort your sleep out. I've got an upcoming event. That would be the Health Optimization Summit, September 14th and 15th in London, England. Really looking forward to joining former guest Tim Gray, as long as my fellow speakers, Dave Asprey and John Gray and tons of other people that have been on the show. I'll also be recording a lot of podcasts out there with some of the guests and speakers that have not yet graced the ears of the listeners to this here show. Now, Katie Wells is a founder of wellnessmama.com and the Wellness Mama podcast on which I was a guest uh, actually this week talking about addiction, circumcision, and psychedelics. Yeah, I know what a combo, right? It was a fun conversation. So definitely go check out the Wellness Mama podcast in general, and especially the one with me on it. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, No, seriously, she's also a best-selling author and she's a mom of six. So when it comes to talking about motherhood and parenting in general, She is one of the top people in the world, and I'm really excited to get her on the show. This is what we talk about in the following conversation. Why the current generation of children is expected to have shorter lifespans than their parents for the first time in history, and how to change it. How Hashimoto's disease can be healed naturally. Katie's amazing journey of growing from a blog into a health and wellness empire. How moms can shape the future of the United States and society as a whole. Katie's experience bringing up six children into the world and raising them to all be conscious humans and the secret to making them not annoying in airports, which I thought was funny. That's kind of the, you know, the judgment, I guess, the metric that uh, by which you would judge one's parenting skills or the success thereof would be, you know, how spastic their kids are in in times of stress as airports are. Okay, uh, Katie's top marriage slash relationship hack why more women are suffering from abnormal and painful cycles and what you can do about it, the optimal diet if you're planning to have children or pregnant for women and men, bucking the mainstream Western methods of birth for more natural births with fewer interventions, the do's and don'ts of raising a healthy baby, hidden toxins and EMFs to avoid, how Katie creates a homeschool designed to stimulate creativity, critical thought, and natural development, and then finding the best time to homeschool as a working mom. 
So as you can see, this episode is chock full of information about all things parenting, kids, birth, etc. It's a really fun conversation. Uh, we recorded this at the same time on the same day that I did her show. So I think all in, we sat down and talked for like four hours or something. So I really got to know Katie. She's the real deal. Amazing woman, amazing mom, and just really down to earth and fun, but also very knowledgeable. So I'm super excited to uh, share Wellness Mama with you. Put on some headphones, get ready to jump in. Katie Wells, what's happening? Hey, thanks for having me. The Wellness Mama. Here we are, finally. Yeah. So it's funny. We just recorded an episode uh, of me on your podcast, and now you're on mine. And when we started, you said, oh, you've been on my list of people to have on the show for a while. And the same goes here. So I'm glad that we're able to find each other. And uh, I've got to give a shout out. I think it was Tina Anderson. Yeah. That ended up connecting us from uh, Just Thrive Probiotics, who's also going to be on the show. I think hers might come out before yours. I forget. But anyway, shout out to Tina. What's up? Love Tina. Yeah, she's great. She's great. So let's jump right in. I want to know first off, because you have such a massive brand in the health and wellness space. And there's been so many damn times where I've Googled something. Hey, I wonder about bone broth or this or that. And I'm like, your site comes up. Like you have the most (laughs) dominating SEO, the most (laughs) rich content. I mean, this is like years now. And then, you know, lo and behold, here we are. But what was the beginning of the journey? How did you get into the health and wellness space as a career to begin with? I was never the plan actually. So you may have heard it said people go into psychiatry to figure out what's wrong with themselves. That was how I got into health. So I had dreams of being a lawyer or a politician. I like as a young child, I saw all these problems in the world and wanted to change them. And I thought in that my model of the world, that's how I was going to do it. So I was very driven and pretty much did everything early, worked really hard through high school, through college. And realized some middle of the way through college that that wasn't what I wanted. So I was in this kind of crisis point of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And long story short, volunteered with a nonprofit that walked across the country, um, met my future husband on the walk. And then shortly after we got married and had a baby. And for me, the getting pregnant was the straw that broke the camel's back. So I was always like not sleeping enough, eating crappy food, studying all the time and in college especially. And I now tell people, if you want to get autoimmune disease, that's the perfect way to do it. Like be really stressed, don't sleep, eat junk food. But the pregnancy was what kind of broke, the straw that broke my, my back for that. And I didn't at the time know what it was. Um, but my degree was in journalism. So my default was to start researching to try to figure it out. And around the same time at my actual six-week follow-up appointment from having a baby, I read in a magazine that for the first time in two centuries, the current generation of children was going to have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And so like all of these things kind of came to a head at once. And I realized like my perfect newborn, all these statistics of what he's going to face in his life and all these things that are on the rise. And at the same time, I'm having my own health crisis and never want him to go through what I'm going through. So very long story short, it took me uh, about eight doctors and, and many years to finally get answers and find out that I had Hashimoto's and... Oh, snap. Yeah. Um, but it was a long road. That, and there were many more pregnancies throughout that as well. And thankfully, none of my kids have had any negative effects from my thyroid being dysfunctional while pregnant. But um, it was a long road. And just realizing... First of all, reading that line about our kids' generation and being a parent, so newly a parent with all those emotions going on, I say that jokingly, that was like my hold my beer moment. Like, I, I'm not okay with this. Like, I had no idea I'm how it was going to change. I've never heard that. <laughs> hold my beer moment. Oh my God. I, I got to remember this. Show notes, send me an email. My producer, send me an email with that line. I'm going to use that every day. That's so funny. 
And that's so Hashimoto's is not a sushi restaurant, then it's a it disease. Is not, it um, is. What, what so that's a that's a dis- disorder of the thyroid? Is it hyper or hypothyroidism? In other words, is, does that mean you're you're in a, too active or not active enough in the thyroid? So area? it can actually be either one, it's autoimmune, oh, wow. it means your body's attacking your thyroid essentially. Oh, um, and it so it can be kind of complicated to find answers to, and like I know how you are in your life as well. I'm actually really grateful in hindsight for that because it sparked this whole research journey. And I think probably a lot healthier foundation for my kids because I really started caring about health when they were really young. But so I started researching this and I had a background in journalism. So my default was to write. And back then, 12 years ago, this a lot of the stuff we talk about was not as mainstream. And um, yeah, and I, there was like um, uh, Dr. McCullough's site was kind of like, the one site and then there was a bunch of weird little hippie fringe new agey sites and L sites, right? There weren't many viable um, websites to get information from. Absolutely. Or there, you'd see like information aggregated across many websites and they're like, wait, this is the same article I just read. I find that still sometimes I'll be looking up some weird treatment for something and I find five websites. I'm like, wait, this is the same exact copy on every single one. Yeah, Exactly. So, uh, well, wow. And so now you basically have created uh, a health and wellness empire. For those people, and I'm sure most of our listeners have probably already go to your website, listen to your podcast, consume your mass amount of content. What's the current status of your brand? Like you're a real company now. Like give me a, a bit like of a snapshot of where your actual like business is as a business owner now. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting part of the story. I didn't originally get into this with the idea of being a business owner. I got into it, like I said, for my own health journey and then realized there are so many other people going through these same challenges that I'm facing and there's not knowledge about this. And so I just had this really deep desire to share what I was learning and hopefully help other people avoid some of the struggle I had had on my own journey and especially to help our kids avoid that. And so drawing from the journalism background, I was like, I want to be the answer to these questions for these people. And so I started writing posts as an an answer to a single question. And ironically, without trying, it was great for SEO because I was like, okay, if someone has this problem, what are they looking for? Which means what are they typing into Google? (laughs) Right, right. And so then I was writing that. um, And it's just turned into 12 years of content now, um, a couple hundred podcast episodes and 1,200 posts. And it's become very much a business. In some ways, I should say I'm probably not the best business person to ask because there's many ways I could make a lot more money. It still has always been about the mission to me. And to that note... like I, I relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm so grateful that I actually get to do this as a job and it's amazing. And I also am really grateful that the majority of my audience are parents because um, moms especially, I think, have a really unique perspective and ability to change outcomes in our country. Not only on a practical level, if we control a large amount of the spending power and we're shaping the next generation. So if we can give them a good foundation, we actually can create ripples that really will change society. And I've started to see that happening largely through the community. And it's really awe-inspiring what moms are capable of. But I also just think at a core level, if you want something to change in the world, you have to change the mom's minds because they just have a ripple effect. Absolutely. What was the first way that you monetized your blog? Unintentionally somewhat. So my husband um, is in the tech world and he had been building websites and doing SEO for companies. And so when I started writing, he gave me some just tips and was testing stuff on the site. And he told me, you know, if you're going to talk about something, link to it so people can find it and use this tool in Amazon to make sure they can 
and then it's an affiliate link. And I, at that point, didn't know what that was, but I just, that was part of my process. And we actually were financially struggling in the beginning. We had multiple small children. He was running his own business and it was just a busy time of life in general. And I was balancing the checkbook one month and was like, where did this extra money come from, from Amazon? Like Amazon doesn't give people money. Did the kids buy something, my phone, and then we returned it? What, like, what is this? And I realized it was from the Amazon commissions. Um, so that was my first realization that this actually could become a business as well. And um, so affiliates were our first and really only stream of income for a very long time because to me, it's really important to maintain integrity and to feel like I'm being authentic. And so I felt like I could put affiliate links in text and if someone was looking for something, they could find it, but it was very not pushy. And I wasn't trying any like hard to sell them something specifically. It was just answering a question for them. And I kind of compared it to like, if you came to my house and said you liked a piece of furniture, I would tell you where I got it, but I would never like try to sell you it if without you right. asking. So it totally. just felt respectful to me. So that yeah. was how it started. I think it's a really... I mean, I have the same element of uh, income in my business and the podcast. And it's like... I think that it's a really actually a great financial arrangement to do affiliate marketing because all three parties benefit and there's not that many types of businesses usually like two parties benefit I guess you know I want this car Ford makes the car I buy it we both win but in affiliate marketing it's interesting because all three entities win right so the person who you know you as the affiliate you win because you get a commission if somebody buys something from one of your links and the reader or listener wins because you've done the research for them and they can go live their life and not have to geek out on what's the best goddamn air purifier or whatever. You've geeked out hardcore and figured that out for them. And in most cases, they're going to get a discount, right? A discount code, which is kind of part of the tracking system. And then the brand wins because hopefully they have a happy lifetime value customer. So it's a really, like you mentioned the word integrity. I think that it's a really cool way to make money. Now, of course, to actually make real money doing that, you have to have a huge audience. You know, so I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, I'm gonna buy a house with my affiliate links from some vitamin on Amazon or something. But um it helps, you know, like you said, you get those little direct deposits and PayPals. It's like, oh cool. Did I do some work? Oh yeah, I did. I guess for 22 years I researched the best of the best and people like to come to you and find out what's the best. And I think it's really useful too because I go to people like you or like a Ben Greenfield or someone I know who just goes and does hardcore amounts of research and I want to know what's the best thing. And it's so funny because when you walked in, I was looking at your website and you have that, um, what's the, one of the air purifiers? on Air doctor, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, is this one good? And you're like, well, what I've done is I've created tiers for some products. Like this is the best one, but it's the most expensive. Here's second choice, third choice. I'm like, awesome. I totally trust you. And I don't care whether or not you're going to make $20 if I buy the air purifier through your site. In fact, if you're going to get a chunk of that commission, I would much rather support your website that's helping all these moms and all these people. So I'm actually incentivized not only to trust you and have you do the research for me, but I'm incentivized to help you make a couple bucks. You can run your site and pay your staff and do your thing. So yeah. I think it's a cool, it's a cool business. Yeah. And I'm like very, like you're very transparent about it. People know that they're affiliate links and yeah. I make sure I'm very open about that. But it's something um, like with our kids where entrepreneurship is a big value for us and teaching them. And um, that's something I tell them a lot is the money. I mean, obviously we all need money to live, but it should always be secondary. And to me, it's a measure of how much you're helping people or it's a measure of the value you're bringing to the world or a problem you're solving. And so um, that's just, I always keep that as the core focus of like making the value and the helping people first. And I feel like the money will always work itself out. It seems to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because 
I think the number one question that I get in a in a general way is like, hey, Luke, what's the best this thing? What's the best that thing? Yep. It's like, it's fun to actually have answers for those. The air purifier ones I get asked a lot. And I'm like, I don't know. I think the molecule is good. Like I researched that, but there's a lot of things. I, I think I have gotten to the root of it and at least found like, if not the best, like you said, the top three or something. And it feels good to be able to help people with that. Because I actually enjoy reading all the reviews and the ingredients and learning about the manufacturing processes and all this stuff where your average person doesn't want to spend their time with all that crap. They're just like, just tell me what the best one is. I'm going to buy it. I'm not that guy. Like I'm going to research and research until I think I found the best. And then when I find something better, then I get rid of the other one and I go on to the best one. So anyway, thank you for doing that work. (laughs) Thank you for creating an awesome uh, business. What I want to talk about in this episode, as I've indicated to you um, to some degree, is I really want to talk about being a mom and having babies and you must know something about it because you've done it six times. It's <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> staggering. There would have been, you know, maybe some time ago that would have been like many women had three, four, five, six kids. Now that's not that common, you know? So I applaud you for bringing more great conscious humans into the world. And I'm very fascinated as to what you've learned, not only in your own journey as a mom, but the things that you've researched and found. So I'm super stoked to cover this because as you said, I really feel that, this type of content is going to have a huge impact moving forward. You know, if we're more conscious parents, we're going to have more conscious kids. We have a more conscious human civilization. So this is kind of the root of where it all starts. So I'm going to just jump right into that. Give me some information about birth control. Uh, If you know anything about the pill, uh, from what I understand, not so good for you. Other types of alternative birth control for people that don't want to have kids or at least not right now? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I should say also like we plan to have a lot of kids. So um, I actually do know something about this topic. And Dr. Jolene Brighton is another one you could eventually have on. Like she has a ton of great information about this. But the short version is basically, if you think about it logically, fertility is a normal function of the body. And especially hormonal options for contraception are basically one of the only drugs we take when we're not sick. And it's blunting a normal response in the body. And I totally understand the reason some people would choose that. It's just you have to understand you can't alter the body's hormones on a fundamental level without potentially creating some problems down the road. So I know that there's a ton of options here and I can go through different ones if you want more specifically on what the problems can look like. But for for me, what I found as far as the most natural option and also that's been highly effective is versions of natural family planning. And I know that's a like people kind of bristle at that. It's not the same as the rhythm method, but basically we now have so much technology that we can use to be able to basically understand the body cycle much more easily and then plan accordingly and basically planning your sex life around that. And so there's apps that do that. There's ones called um, Q and Flow and Life. And then there's actually now devices like Daisy that make it really easy, even to ones like AvaQ that measure both vaginal and saliva pH and give you a lot more metrics. Really? So there's like a highly scientific... Can I get an app that like has an alarm when it's okay to have sex with my girlfriend? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Look, you're good to go for the next three days. Hurry. (laughs) There is one. My husband gets emails. Really? Yep. Oh, you know, actually, I do get an email from some site called Flow Living, yeah. I think, F-L-O, right? Yeah. right. I don't have the app, which I should get, but yeah, I get an email that says, oh, this is what your partner's going through right now. They're ovulating and these are the types of, um, you know, like uh, dates that they would enjoy and, you know, here's what they're going through emotionally. This is how they feel sexually and stuff like that. And I find that really interesting. So I encourage any men listening, because a lot of men obviously listen to the show, 
too, this is a great relationship hack, actually, to understand the menstrual cycle and how you can be supportive and have a happy partner and a happy relationship. So anyway, thank you for those apps. Carry on with the birth control. Yeah. So what's the thing called that's not called the rhythm method? Family planning? Natural family planning is kind of the broad term. And then there's a lot of methods within that that some look at like cervical fluid and mucus. Um, Some look at temperature. You can actually integrate all of those. Um, just to kind of build in redundancies. I like default to that with business. I'm like <laughs> right, always build right. in redundancies. Right. Um, but it actually, if done correctly, it has comparable success rates to other forms of contraception without the potential downsides. Wow. Um, and also, I think it's just important to realize having a normal cycle monthly is a normal part of physiology. And you can learn a lot when you're actually tracking that. If it starts getting longer or shorter or changing, you can, from those patterns, actually sometimes find health problems that are going on early. Um, that you would miss if you were just medicating with birth control and causing everything to be exactly the same every month. Right. Someone told me, and this could be just one of those weird memes that you catch online and have no basis in reality, but I think it's that like birth control pills are made from horse urine or something like that. Do you know, is there any truth to that? There's or, definitely some weird uh, sourcing going on. I've heard right. stuff like that too. I haven't seen any studies that would oh, verify okay. it, but... Uh, it's also interesting to know, like as we start to learn more about just pheromones and human interaction and and body chemistry, that um, they've done studies. For instance, I think it was in chimps. Have you heard about these studies? I don't know. Carry um, on. Where like y- you basically will be attracted to a partner that you weren't as biologically compatible with if oh, they were on the yeah. pill, because it alters your pheromones and your perception of body chemistry. And I've heard that actually from friends who got married and then I like got pregnant, went off the pill, and then like their attraction with their spouse changed. I'm like, that's a dangerous game to play. Like, Oh my God. Wait till you're married and then see if you're compatible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think to me, just the even though I don't know that much about like taking the birth control pill, but just from a common sense perspective, anything that's that awesome can't be good for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh great, no more menstruating and you can't get pregnant. Awesome. Like that's such a drastic change to a woman's physiology that I'm always just skeptical about that. I interviewed Robin Burzen uh, from Parsley Health, a great functional medicine doctor a couple of years ago and asked her about it. And she said, well, definitely wouldn't advise it. And she said something to the effect uh, that if you have been on birth control that she recommended, I think that you get off it for three years before you get pregnant because that's how jacked up your hormones get and it can really affect the success of your birth and your healthy offspring. I was like, oh shit, that's pretty serious coming from an MD that went to Columbia. I mean, she's a real doctor. She's not, you know, some hippie. Absolutely. Just read Nothing the package against hippies. There's like, a lot of smart hippies, but this is someone who's, you know, very much like a functional medicine doctor, but not like a woo-woo fringe person, like very scientific. So I was like, damn. Well, and even the packaging lists side effects from blood clots to increased risk of cancer. Like we know that there are side effects and we know they happen. And again, I'm not ever going to judge someone for their choice if you understand, yeah. but have informed consent, know what you're getting into if, if that's the choice you're going to make. And other than this, uh, the rhythm method, the pill, this family planning thing, what else is there? there isn't there some kind of like a little disc type thing or something? <laughs> are, are there any other options that are more natural or, or even the, um, what about the, the um, what is it called? A diaphragm? The, uh, yeah. I mean, there's everything. There's a lot of those. There's, um, I mean, obviously there's condoms and then there's more extreme versions of that, like the diaphragm that gets implanted in like IUDs. IUDs. That's IUDs, what I'm yeah. thinking of. Yes. Yes. And those in general, from what I, the research I've done, it's less hormones and there's potentially less side effects, but it's like when there are side effects, they're, they can be much more dangerous. So uh, they can get pushed up into the uterus. They can actually cause like 
ruptures and tears. Um, I even saw one case of a baby being born with an IUD in their body because the mom got pregnant while the IUD was in there. Um, so unfortunately, there's like no perfect option for sure. Right. And like even NFP requires a lot more work. It's like most things in health, like the most natural option almost always requires more work in some way. And it's the same with this. Got it. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. It's a question I get a lot. And to stack onto that question, there's a lot of female listeners to this show, which I totally never anticipate. I thought it was going to be kind of a bro dude show when I started this podcast, but it has not turned out that way. So I'm cool. Everyone's welcome to the party, but I get a lot of questions from women. And it seems a lot of women these days are really struggling with abnormal cycles and specifically just excruciating pain for days and days and heavy bleeding and things that I don't think were common for their grandmothers or great-grandmothers. It seems to be somewhat of a, a recent phenomenon, maybe just as the result of you know our disconnection from nature or whatever. Have you come across any solutions to getting cycles more regulated, less painful, more manageable, tolerable, et cetera? Yeah, I think there's a few things that are across the board helpful for that. But I also think just like, it's just a very bio-individual topic. So for women, there can be a lot of root causes. Actually coming off the pill can be a huge cause of that for women. And it can take years to fully regulate back to normal from that. But we know now things like all of the estrogens in our food and in plastic can really contribute to estrogen imbalance in the body. So that's a topic I write about a lot is just removing plastic in general as much as possible from your life. Also just estrogen in food. So any non-organic meat products have the potential to have hormones in them. Pesticides can interfere with hormones. Like I know you talk about this a lot, but just there's so many problems with our food supply. I think anything hormonal, you have to start with addressing food and sleep and stress because we know and can clearly demonstrate the effect of those on hormones. Interestingly, a topic that's not talked about as much, but I think also is really helpful for a lot of women is their natural or their hygiene products. So like what they're using during their period actually has a big impact there. And it's not something that's talked about very much. Um, for a lot of years, there was tampons and pads and they were almost always both from non-organic bleached cotton with a lot of chemicals on them. And what we're starting to find now is those, because they're so absorptive, actually encourage the body to bleed more. And Oh, Wow. Yeah. And then you have chemicals in a very vascular sensitive area of the body where they're being absorbed for roughly three to five days at a time. Oh, that's so gnarly. Yeah. And, and people don't think about it. It's oh my God. And most cotton is GMO too. Exactly. So you have mutated genes inside you. Yeah. And again, it's one of those like birth control. There's no absolutely perfect option. So right. like you can make like, for instance, some women use cloth pads. You have to wash those. That's a pain in the butt. You can get organic versions of both of those. It's still got a big environmental impact. You're putting a lot of waste. I mean, most women will put several hundred pounds of plastic waste into landfills during their lifetime because of their period. Um, Whoa. Oh, because of the little applicator, the little tube yeah, thing. Or the pad itself has plastic ah, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is like a substantially big impact. And there are now a lot of natural options like menstrual cups and various versions of that. There's a small risk of TSS, toxic shock syndrome with those, just like with tampons. Although the stats I've seen, it's less of a risk. But from I've heard from literally hundreds of women about this. And it's fascinating when they switch to like a menstrual cup versus tampons and pads, most of them notice over several months that their periods get easier and their cramps go away because their body's able to more just like equalize to natural output versus this highly absorptive, essentially cotton ball that's just pulling all the moisture out. Do you 
uh, are you aware of any other root cause issues other than the estrogen dominance kind of thing in terms of heavy cramping and things? Well, endometriosis and PCOS are both on the rise pretty drastically in the US right now. And so I think if women are having a lot of pain and especially if it's paired with heavy bleeding or any other symptoms, that's something very much worth seeing a functional doctor about and addressing because those are things you can absolutely address. But a lot of times there's several root causes that you would need to look at. But like for instance, PCOS is tied that we know to blood sugar. So you would want to make sure you're eating a diet that's supporting stable blood sugar and like lower, for sure, low in processed carbs. And what does that acronym stand for? PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh, okay. Basically where cysts are happening on the ovaries at different times. Is that fibroids? Is that the same thing or different? Different. It's similar. Um, And and these are all problems that are on the rise. And I think it's multifaceted. Obviously, our food and lifestyle is a lot more toxic than it used to be. But like I said, even just the products people are putting in there right next to that area of the body are toxic as well. Right. So best practice there is see a functional medicine doctor, get labs, like find out what your hormonal imbalances are, avoid using personal care products that are toxic, etc. Yeah, I wish there was an easier answer, but I think hormones are a pretty complicated topic and it's often really varied and individual. And I wouldn't want to say like, oh, this supplement helps a lot of people because for that other percentage, it's going to throw them into more imbalance. Right, right. I know some of these things, I interview experts and I'm like, give me the magic bullet. But (laughs) it is oftentimes just a lifestyle thing, you know? I mean, that's the thing. Like I've worked on my sleep for a long time and I think, you know, oh, I need to have the curtains blacked out. Well, that's one piece of it, but the room also needs to get cold. And you can't do any work like after nine o'clock on your computer or you're going to make cortisol and get all hyper, then you won't want to go to bed. I mean, it's like some of these things are so lifestyle-based and systemic that you have to really start chipping away at them to finally find out what the cause. It's not like you can just be like, take ginseng and you'll be cured. It just, right. that usually doesn't work, you know. Do you have a chili pad? I have loved my chili pad. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Did you see the new one they're the making? Uller? Yeah. Oh have you tried God. it? Oh my God. No, I haven't. I just saw it. I'm so stoked though. Yeah. I interviewed uh, Todd Youngblood, the inventor nice. uh, on the show, which I think will have probably come up by the time this one airs. Yeah. The chili pad changed my life. Like my sleep is so good after getting that dumb bite. It's like such a simple idea. Keep the surface of your bed cold. Mine's my magic number is 66 degrees. Okay. Mine's 61. My husband's 55. Oh my God. What? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. Sometimes I wake up with this even a little bit cold, but yeah, the chili pad's awesome. But anyway, it's, you know, one piece of the puzzle and oftentimes there's, you know, a lot more to this. Uh, Was there something else on that that I wanted to... Oh, let's say... Let's say a woman uh, is having a hard time giving having vaginal birth and has to have a C-section. Would you have any advice for her in that situation? Absolutely. And I wish I had had this advice to give myself, actually. Uh, My number three was a C-section. Um, due to placenta previous, it was an emergency C-section. And I was so arrogant before that. I had had two normal births and I was in my head, I was like, I'm, I wouldn't even read the part of the book about C-section because I'm like, I don't have C-sections. I have natural births. And um, so he was a C-section. I almost died. He almost died. And he was in the NICU for seven days. And then later on, he had eczema and allergies and a bunch of stuff we had to work through. And it led to all this research. And I realized um, there's a great film about this called Microbirth. Oh, no way. Um, it's Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. But oh, cool. What, what they now know is that during the birthing process, the mom is transferring 
a, like her microbiome to the baby, but it's through her vaginal microbiome. And it's so funny because this is an area doctors get all freaked out and they're like, it's so gross. I'm like, it's a completely natural process of what happens. Like babies are born through the vaginal canal with their mouth open. It's what actually happens. But that basically seeds the gut from the mom's gut bacteria, which is what is in their environment and what their family, like her diet is her guts used to her diet. So it's a really important step. And in a C-section, not only does that not happen, the baby's gut is getting seeded often to the bacteria in the hospital environment and a lot of stuff going on. So the entire premise of microbirth is, I mean, obviously C-sections saved my life. I think they're wonderful. Western medicine is wonderful at them when they need to happen. I do think there's a lot that could be avoided with proper education, but in the event that they do need to happen, they now have this process called seeding that you can do to basically kind of hack the process and give the baby a good microbiome, even if they're not born vaginally. And so I am a doula and I've been a student midwife. And this is something... Oh, cool. It's so funny how freaked out doctors get about this when you try to do it in the OR. And like, it's so gross. And I'm like, that's... Babies come out of there. Like, But basically the process is using sterile gauze in the vaginal canal pre-birth. So basically getting it acclimated to the mom's bacteria and then putting it in a jar where it's staying sterile with all of its bacteria. And when the baby's born, having the dad or doula midwife use that gauze and wipe the baby head to toe, like eyes, nose, mouth, ears, and whole body to get that seated interaction of bacteria. Oh, I always wondered how that went. I was It's kind of a loaded question. I mean, I knew a little bit about this, but I've just heard, oh, you have to swab the baby. And I literally like in my mind pictured, oh, so you get a Q-tip, <laughs> you put it in there, rub it around a little bit, and then you just rub that on the kid's gums or something. You know, I didn't know it was actually like there was a very specific procedure for it. Yeah. And there's research on this coming That's out of so Europe. Cool. It's fascinating. And just little things like have the mom sleep with some baby blankets for a week prior to birth and then wrap the baby in those versus the sterile oh. bleached hospital ones. If you're in a hospital, which you obviously are for Because C-section. there's going to be uh, bacteria from her skin. And from her environment. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. You know what I have noticed about that anecdotally? I was uh, vaginal birth. My mom was pretty big, like 5'10", so she could handle my little 10-pound bruiser baby body. But my um, two half-brothers were both... Their mom's really tiny and they were both C-section. And their whole lives, they've had colds nonstop. And I always thought that was weird because they, you know, they lived a healthy lifestyle. My one brother's super into fitness. I mean, they're they're healthy guys. You know, they're much younger than I am. And like every time I talk to them, what's up? Oh, I got a cold again. I'm like, what? The, what's the problem? We basically live the same lifestyles. Eat the, I mean, they're not as extreme with me with the biohacking and stuff, but they eat clean and, you know, don't use chemicals in their house and all the basics, you know. And I think sometimes like, ah, maybe their immune system didn't get that initial umph. You know, and then later in life in their 30s, they still have weak sauce immune systems because they didn't get that, you know, the swab. They didn't get the rub down. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> and well, it's, it's hard to go back and fix at this point once you're already seated. Right, right. There's like a very limited window. Right. Okay, cool. That's very interesting. I love getting more information. I. It's just funny. I geek out on this stuff. Like I love understanding the way things work, you know, especially when it comes to making a human and making that human be as strong and viable as possible. It's very fascinating. Uh, what about preconception? You know, we talk about the pregnancy having, what is there, three trimesters, right? Yeah, three times three. Yeah, nine months. Okay. Yeah. What about the time before? You know, this is something I think about 
because I'm someone that's done a lot of my own labs and I have lead and heavy metals and fungus and bacteria, yeast, all this weird stuff going on from doing functional medicine labs. And I think, oh my God, if I get married and have a kid, what's going on inside a woman's body who's been living in you know, civilization with all the industrial pollutions and all the weird stuff that we um, are dealing with? What would be your recommended protocol for someone that's consciously, hey, let's have kids soon, what kind of lead time would you need? Do you need to do detoxing or get on a certain diet? Like how do you prepare both parents, not just the one, but how do you prepare for conception? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, um, I would look at it almost like five trimesters. So we know the three of pregnancy, I would put one before and after of at least three months. And I'd actually probably make both of those at least six months long for both preparation and then recovery. And thankfully, it's a testament to how amazing our bodies are that in most cases, pregnancy still works out really well, even if parents don't do this. So I'm not trying to put guilt on anyone. But I think preconception, especially, especially for a not first child, but even with the first one, you do want to address things like different toxin levels in the body and nutrient levels in the body and things like methylation, which we're only starting to understand. I think there's a lot of holes in what we understand about genetics, but we've known for a long time the connection between medicine called it at the point folic acid and spinal like neural tube defects. We're now actually finding it should be folate or methylfolate, but there is a definite connection between proper fetal development and making sure your folate is optimized. So that's a simple test that I would say, like know before you get pregnant, know your folate status for both partners, but especially the woman, because that can show up not just in the really extreme cases like spina bifida, if it's not optimized, but anything along the midline. So tongue ties and lip ties, which can cause tremendous problems with breastfeeding um, can be related to that. So I think, and a lot of cultures around the world do this. It's built into their experience of parenting is this preparation phase and then recovery phase. And in America, we're just really bad about that. But they focus on eating highly nutrient-dense foods pre-pregnancy, making sure they have enough of the foods that contain the things you need when you're growing a human, like iron and B12 and just micronutrients in general, because the baby's going to pull those is the thing. If they exist in your body, the baby's going to get them and you're going to suffer. So it's not just important for the baby. It's really important for the mom as well. Um, And then for the dad, it's uh, obviously sperm regenerates more quickly. So there's a little bit more leeway and you guys can get away with more. You could but... party like a rock star until the week before. <laughs> <laughs> or say like the month before, but you just want to make sure your nutrient levels are optimized. And right. yeah. Do you, do you happen to know about the, the mitochondrial piece? I recently heard something, I didn't get too deep into it, but a child's mitochondria is provided by the mother, not the father. And so if the mother has mitochondrial dysfunction, that's going to just carry right over into the baby. Do you know anything about that piece? I've heard that as well. Um, I haven't gone deep on it either, but I, I know that like in general, a lot more gets passed on from the mom. I mean, the genes split relatively evenly or they can, but um, as far as nutrient stores and gut bacteria and all that, like the mom has a lot on her plate to make sure that all those things are optimized and you kind of only do get one shot. It's actually way easier to optimize those things in utero than when the baby's out. Um, so I think it's worth, if that's on the horizon for someone, spending a little bit of time researching and spending those six months ahead of time, really cleaning up your diet, probably like avoiding alcohol, avoiding anything that's processed and just focusing on the nutrients and the micronutrients to build your body stores up, which will also be really helpful Um, Because most women aren't like they're pretty sick those first three months, or they at least just don't feel as good. And so you want to have those micronutrients because you're not eating as much. Right. And so you got to kind of like front load. That's interesting. Yeah. And then if and when you're going to breastfeed too, you need like the double nutrition. Those nutrient levels in your body, I'm assuming, have to be almost, well, I don't know if double, but you have to have excess of them because you're going to be giving a bunch of that away. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. I don't think you need double the food by volume, but right, you for right. sure need double the food by nutrients. Right. Interesting. Hmm. Are there any foods other than just toxic foods that one might want to avoid once they have become pregnant? Again, I think it's it's hard to be saying this. It's a very varied thing. In general, I mean, there's the common list from society about soft cheeses and anything that could contain listeria and, you know, sushi. And Oh, sushi's off the menu? See, I don't know any of this. I mean, honestly, I'm like total bro here. I'm just, (laughs) I actually am really curious to learn for myself and, you know, obviously for the benefit of the listeners, but I had no idea. Well, and Japan would debate us with that. They, oh, okay. they I would say you would want to make sure your sushi is from a good source if you're. Is it because it. of parasites or something? Parasites and potential of just contamination of bacteria oh, or okay. heavy metals is a concern. You want to watch for that. Ooh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay, interesting. And then uh, let's see. Oh, such a such an interesting conversation here. And then <laughs> this is just purely cosmetic, but again, a question that I've I've seen come up a lot. And that is obviously the woman's body's making room for this baby and oftentimes creating stretch marks. Is there anything that women can do to keep their body looking the way they want to? Or not just stretch marks, but just recovering physically in general from going through such a dramatic change like that? Yeah. What it, one that actually ties in with the previous question too. Um, I found it out the hard way, but for me, magnesium was a tremendous key to not getting morning sickness and also to recovering more quickly. Oh, really? So I was magnesium deficient for my first couple of births and didn't know it. And then once I optimized that, I didn't get morning sickness anymore. Word. And I recovered more quickly. So that's an easy one. Like get a good source and build it up. Do you have time. any particular uh, type of magnesium? You know, there's all these different eonate, data bait, booty booty bing. Right. All these types. Well, it's a tough thing. So I use transdermal in the beginning on the skin oh, okay. just because it's like more magnesium gentle. magnesium oil? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and when I first started trying to optimize it, mainly because I was so deficient if I took it, it like messed my gut up and I felt terrible. Oh, and right. it was even like pushing stuff out through my skin because of histamine reactions. Now I take one called Mag SRT. And that one has been very gentle. I think I would have been fine with that even in pregnancy, but work up slowly. Magnesium cool. can be a laxative. So don't jump right. into a mega dose. Um, right. So that one's helpful. And um, yeah, I think that would, that's a big one. And then also I think protein is undervalued in pregnancy. So obviously you're growing a human. There's a tremendous need for amino acids. Unfortunately, most women don't feel like eating protein, at least in the beginning of pregnancy. Like most foods are with protein are kind of, they have an aversion to them. So I would say like front load the protein as well ahead of time. And then as soon as you're able, get really clean quality sources of protein and get as much as you can. Um, not only are there statistics of that reducing the risk of things like preeclampsia, also it's beneficial to the baby, but that high protein turnover and the collagen that results can really help avoid stretch marks, especially when you pair it with vitamin C rich foods or vitamin C. Cool. That's a good hack right there. What about anything topically? Like when your skin is stretching and the baby's growing and growing and all of a sudden you have a couple basketballs in your belly. Is there, (laughs) you know, like cacao butter, like anything like that that's useful to just keep the skin supple and less likely to show wear and tear afterward? I think any of the ones that are relatively close to skin composition, like shea butter, cacao butter, any of those are good. Um, I do think they're really the best thing is going to come from the internal because a lot of those okay. things aren't crossing the skin barrier 
that effectively. I think vitamin C and protein together is probably the best combination for that. And I wish I had known that pre-first baby because I learned it in the end and stopped getting stretch marks, but already had some from the beginning. I wonder, you know, you just might not have any answer, but I'm sitting here looking at my juve red light. I'm wondering like what safe biohacking technology there is. Like, could you, I wonder if it's safe to use like a juve red light when you're pregnant or some of these different things. Like, did, did you ever do infrared saunas or any of that kind of stuff? Or do you have to really kind of be weary of those type of practices when you have a baby inside you? Well, legally, I would say, I think we're supposed to say, ask your doctor before you do anything besides breathe when you're pregnant. Sure. Um, I will say I did use the juve when I was pregnant. And I think it does. I mean, it helps with collagen creation and it helps with mitochondrial function. So those are both tremendously important. I have not seen any data that would show it was dangerous at all during pregnancy. So again, clear it with your doctor, but I would think that would be considered a very safe hack to use while pregnant. The sauna question is really fascinating because you hear actually a lot of people say, don't use the sauna when you're pregnant because you're not supposed to get your body temperature up. But um, I visited Finland this year and met many pregnant women in the sauna and it's totally part of their culture. Oh, no way. Yeah, they actually birth wow. in the sauna in some places what? because it's so cold. And so I looked into the research after it. There's actually no data that I could find that a sauna is dangerous until you don't want to raise the body's temperature a lot. So right. like moderate sauna use looks like it should be totally safe while pregnant unless there's some other health factor at play that you would need to be careful about. Um, but again, definitely talk to your doctor. That's so interesting, you know, because I think about, um, you know, the Native American sweat lodge tradition and you think evolutionarily speaking, I have to imagine that women who are pregnant were also participating in that, you'd think, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, you can't come in, you're pregnant. It seems like it's kind of part of the human life to heat yourself up. I wonder about uh, ice baths. <laughs> Probably a bad idea, right? <laughs> yeah. That, I <laughs> might don't be know. a little extreme. I wonder that might be just shocking enough to like maybe, I don't know, cause contractions because it tightens. Right. Like I know when I do the ice bath for a long enough time, it's cold enough, like my stomach almost hurts from like shivering and Right. Cramping. I'm like probably not good when yeah. you're pregnant. Yeah, I I would I would say so. I mean, it's kind of a stressful thing when you get in there and you, the baby's going to be in there kicking. Like, get me out of here, jerk! What kind of mom are you? Um, let's see here. Okay, so what about the process of natural birth? The role of a midwife, a doula. If someone decides that they don't want to go to a hospital and be under that gnarly fluorescent lighting and have all the drugs and epidermals and all this kind of stuff. What do you have to say about either your experience or your knowledge about the process of doing an old school human birth as natural as possible? What are the options there? Thankfully, a lot more than they used to be. And I have actually had the gamut of births myself. So I can speak from experience on quite a few of them. It depends on the state. Their state laws vary in a lot of places. Where I used to live, actually home birth was illegal uh, until very... like. A couple months ago. What? So my last two births were technically illegal because I had a home birth. But in general, I think the Western method is it became so mainstream for so long, automatically go to the hospital, accept all the interventions. And I think we're seeing the tide shift of that. Women are becoming much more aware and researching this. And we're seeing a resurgence in things that have always existed, home birth, midwife assisted birth, or various options in between. Now there's birthing centers that are a great option. And even in hospitals, women are able to have more natural births much more often. Um, I know like we used to live near Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt had birthing tubs and very much supported skin to skin and a lot of the things that go along with natural birth. But I think it also, it's really important for women to consider her own comfort level. And I will, like I said, I I was very arrogant at first. I will never judge a woman for her birthing choices. I think it's 
very much something she should have choice in. And if a woman reads all the literature and decides to have an elective C-section, I would never judge her for that. I would say, please do all the seating things. But throughout history, women have given birth typically in a more home environment where they felt safe. And I think one of the big risk factors with hospitals is like, I know I don't feel comfortable in hospitals when I'm going just to get a blood draw. Oh my God. Hospitals have the worst vibe ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that's why I'm asking the question. I'm like, God, and just like what I was sharing with you about my ayahuasca vision earlier and seeing my own birth. I was like, oh God, that that experience sucked. Yes. Yeah. And I think like, so then to have to go go through a very intense experience in that place, surrounded by people you don't know in very bright lights. And then you have your baby, like to your experience, coming into the world in a very confusing environment that they're not used to, often surrounded by like bright lights and screaming and beeping and monitors and being prodded by things immediately. Um, and so I think that's that was part of my own journey. I had my first four in hospitals actually. And then my last two were home births. And um, just seeing that progression and ironically how it's played out in my kids' personalities even. Like my first, I was so nervous and young and scared and like very uptight about the whole thing and went into it with this like warrior mentality of like, I can fight through this. And he's so much a fighter and like very type A. And I see that like his birth in his personality so much. Interesting. And then like the progression all the way down to my last, who's like so easygoing and... And I don't think it's just their birth. I think there's temperament as well. Sure, sure. But I just would say like, it, to the degree that a woman feels comfortable, our bodies were made to do this. And there are obviously exceptions. And if those things happen, you're in the best place in the world here. Like they're great for like truly life-threatening scenarios. But short of that, it's I have found in my experience, birth is so much easier in an environment where you actually feel really comfortable. So if that's home for women, it can be a much easier birth. And for me, that looked like in hospitals, I would have 24-hour labors because I was so uncomfortable and scared. And at home, my last birth was it was three hours long. What? It was a drastic difference. Wow. Yeah. That's really profound. And also, I think it's just returning to the lo- having a level of trust for our bodies. That's the part that we've lost the most. Um, there's a great uh, woman named Ina McGaskin. She writes about this a lot. I don't know if the quote's from her, but I read it on something of hers that the secret is not that birth is hard. It's that women are strong. And that's what we've lost. We've lost that trust in our own body and we feel like we need a doctor to help us have a baby. And even the language just surrounding the birthing experience, doctors say, I delivered a baby. No, they didn't. The woman delivered the baby. The doctor caught the baby. Oh, interesting. And that's the difference in just the language you hear with midwives is they help the mom. They assist the mom. They catch the baby. They don't deliver the baby because that's the mom's job. And I remember that shift after um, a few hospital births. The first time I met with a midwife and I my language was so habituated to the hospital. I kept saying, well, can I do this? Will you let me do this? And she goes, I, it's your decision. I'm not going to let you or not let you do anything. <laughs> right, right. And it was this really shift in my how I interacted with doctors even. But um, I mean, at the end of the day, birth is difficult. It's a, a very intense experience. And I wouldn't say it hurts, it can. Um, I just think in general, you're actually statistically going to have better outcomes in a place you feel comfortable. And for a lot of women, that's at home. And there are highly trained, amazing midwives who can support those options. I've written about it a little bit, but my last two babies were actually both breech. And What's that mean? So they were upside down. Um, oh, wow. Babies are supposed to come out head first. My uh, fifth one was in like a dive, a pike dive position. So she came out bottom first. And Whoa. I tried all the things to turn her. She was not going to... She wanted to come out feet first and hit the ground running. Like that was her goal. Whoa. And I was still... She would have not been a home birth if it wasn't for that because I was still seeing a practice of midwives at the hospital. And they were medical enough that they said, oh, we won't let you deliver naturally here at the hospital. We can't let you. And that's when I was like, well, you're fired. 
and I found a midwife two weeks before I had her and had an illegal home birth because I was like, I know my body can do this. And I also know what recovery from a C-section feels like. And I don't want to do that again. And so went from like 24-hour labors, every single hospital birth to she was like 12-hour labor and super easy. Recovery was awesome. And then number six was breach again. And I was like, are you kidding me? I have to do this again. And she actually came out Indian style, like I'm sitting right now, <laughs> no way. which was Seriously? not fun. Um, but in both cases, my body was totally capable of doing it. And the midwife at home who assisted had delivered like 60 breech babies because she still had that skill. And doctors and hospitals oh. have never been trained to do that. So in that case, if a baby is appearing to come out breached, would they just be like, oh, C-section and just... Immediately. Like, oh my God. Life, like, a lot of times they'll knock the mom out. It's like an extreme emergency. Or if they know ahead of time the baby's breached, they won't even let they even attempt. her try. Yeah, yeah, that's quote quotes let. Yeah, well, I you know I think I'm just like a rebel at my core, and I have always had issues with authority and just not having a sense of autonomy in the world. And so I think that's why I always kind of buck up against tradition, especially when tradition is not logical. Mm-hmm. as we were talking about on on your podcast with the circumcision thing and just things like that that we just go along with because they're the status quo. And then if you actually just take some time to zoom out from it and be thoughtful, many things that we humans do, especially when it comes to medical practices, just don't make any sense. You know, it's like you said, a woman's body knows what to do. Women are freaking powerful. And if they know that they're powerful, they're even more powerful. You know, they're powerful even when they don't know it and their power has been stripped. When they own that, Mm -hmm. it's like, dude, your body is designed to be able to do this. You can do it. So I think that's really cool. And also just what you're saying about being in a hospital, like even just if a buddy gets sick and I have to go visit them in the hospital or something, it's like, oh, you know, you want to do it. You want to be a good friend, but like, let's admit it. It sucks to be in a hospital, even when you're not the one that's sick or having a procedure. It's just gnarly in there. Yeah. Just the sound and it's just the EMFs and just the whole thing is just really kind of a bummer. Well, and and to just speak to your experience too for a minute of like having that experience of kind of reliving your birth. I look now like through my birth experiences, trying to look through my kid's eyes and like that first one, poor thing, he got like forcibly like helped out of me and then was like taken away for a little while. And it was like, and the one VSC section, he was taken away for eight days. Oh, and wow. how traumatic that had to be versus my last one at home, water birth, like no one even touched her till she was entirely out of my body. And then I picked her up and held her. And like, this was at 10 o'clock at night. At 1130, we went to bed in my own bed and I cuddled her all night and she nursed for eight hours and wow. she woke up perfectly happy and has been a great sleeper ever since. And so I'm like, it's just a That's drastic difference. crazy. How yeah. cool. Good for you. But the mom guilt is real though because I'm like, oh, yeah. I wish I had known that with my first one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we do the best we can at the time. That's why it's fun to do podcasts like this. You know, someone who's thinking about conceiving or perhaps is already pregnant can go, oh, wait, there's alternatives to the status quo and just the way that everyone does things. And, you know, then they can make their own decision. Well, and I think like a lot of women choose the hospital route because of the pain factor. Oh, right. You know, because right. birth is a very intense experience. But I will say having been through the gamut of birth experiences, there, yes, it's very intense and it can be very painful at the end, but there is nothing like that feeling of hormones and empowerment that comes when you actually get through it on the other side. Like you are invincible. Every time I've given birth naturally, I'm like, I could run a marathon right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's That's just cool. it's an incredible sense. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. 
Most of us that are into health now realize that it's really important that we watch what we're eating and we're drinking, right? But I think a lot of people still don't realize how important it is to be mindful about the things you put on your body, not just in your body. So I'm talking about the lotions, the skincare products, personal care products, etc. That stuff goes right into the pores of your skin and it doesn't have the opportunity to go through your liver and your detox organs to get removed. It goes into your bloodstream. Little random secret here. This is why Jimi Hendrix is said to have put LSD in his headband at Woodstock because it goes right in your skin and he trip balls. Anyway, I digress. My friend Andy, who's been on the show a couple times, you can go back and listen to episode 18, created this company a few years ago called Alatura Naturals. And Andy... <laughs> I mean, if I could ever met anyone that's on my level of obsession with quality, he might even have me beat. He is completely obsessed with sourcing the best ingredients. You could literally eat his products. I mean, I, I don't know if you would want to eat some lotion or a clay mask, but you could and it wouldn't hurt you. Because um, here's the deal. Your skin actually does eat anything that you put on it. That's what I really want you guys to understand. So his ingredient decks are just nuts. Um, my personal favorites are the night cream. I mean, I ration that stuff out like just a tiny little bit every night because I'm so afraid I'm going to run out of it. It's so awesome. The clay mask is face lotion. This is what I use for anti-aging, brighten complexion, detoxification of my skin, removal of blemishes, hydrating the skin like crazy and making it possible for me to be a beast with sun exposure. I mean, I'm out in the sun every single day in LA. I don't know. I think for creeping on 50, my skin looks pretty good. And um, it's definitely largely due to Alatura Naturals products, which you can find at alaturanaturals.com. If you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you're going to save yourself 20% and get free shipping in the US. That's alaturanaturals.com. And the code is LIFESTYLIST. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast is brought to you by my friends over at Juve. So for the past year or so, I've been doing something called photobiomodulation. That's a super geeky term for using red light therapy. And Juve make a device that is hanging right here next to me in my podcast studio that I use just about every damn day. In fact, most days I use it twice a day. So why would you want to use red light therapy? Well, just like a whole food can be broken down into different vitamins and minerals, sunlight can also be broken down into different colors. And just like the nutrients in whole food, each color and sunlight has its own effect on our bodies. So once absorbed into your body, light energy is converted into cellular energy, which kicks off a series of metabolic events like the formation of new capillaries, elevated production of collagen, and the release of ATP. And red light therapy has even been approved by the FDA and its effectiveness has been studied throughout the world. So here's why I use the Juve red light therapy device on the reg. Repairs sun damage, which I get a lot of, reduces wrinkles, which I'm getting a few of, enhances muscle recovery and peak performance. When I work out, I have that issue. Heals acne and other blemishes, fades scars and stretch marks, speeds wound healing, reduces joint inflammation, and my favorite benefit of the Juve, increases testosterone production. So if you're interested in checking out some of those benefits for yourself, you can go over to juve.com forward slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. Here's the catch. If you use the code Luke at checkout, you will receive a special free gift. So go to juve.com forward slash Luke, use the code Luke and get hooked up with some Juve red light therapy. And now back to the interview. 
I've actually never, never heard that. I've never gotten feedback on that. Like, what, what do you feel like? I think oftentimes it's all about the baby's survival and, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's paying attention to the baby and then the mom's still laying there like, oh, what about you? How are you doing over there? Yeah. That's cool. That's really neat, uh, neat feedback. So when we've actually had this baby successfully, uh, this is a part that always kind of concerns me is now this baby is coming into, let's face it, a really toxic world. So let's talk about some of the best practices for keeping your baby as safe as you can. I mean, obviously we can't get neurotic and that crazy, like there's EMFs, there's all kinds of stuff, but what about natural diapers, um, skincare products, lotions for the baby, baby bottles that aren't made of toxic plastic? Like what kind of stuff have you come across that are the worst offenders and what are some of the solutions for things that are around the baby or in the baby once they come out successfully? Yeah, I think when it comes to that, less is more for sure. Um, like plastics and the note of bottles, endocrine disruptors are a huge problem when you're dealing with a teeny tiny endocrine system. So it's largely as much as you can avoid having things around your baby. You actually don't need all of the fancy gear and toys and like equipment that society's going to tell you you need to have when it comes to babies. And but like so, my first kid, I had all those things and I had so much stuff. And then by like the last one, it was like four things, and it's just so much simpler. So you don't need to put a ton of products on your baby. They're born with a skin microbiome that's wonderful. thing that people most don't really know, um, when babies are born, this surprises new parents a lot. They're born with this stuff called vernix on them. It's like this cheesy, waxy substance and it looks really nasty and gross. Really? And so in hospitals, the instinct is like wipe it all off and give the baby a bath and then give it to their parents. But that actually has all these nutrients in it. And also it's got protective bacteria and all kinds of stuff in it. So you actually want to like leave it on and like rub it in as a moisturizer essentially. And that alone will protect baby's skin for a long time. So they don't need lotion right away. They're actually born with pretty good fatty acid stores. Like that you don't need to put anything on them. You don't need to bathe them a ton. They're pretty clean. They're not playing in the, the outside or you know touching anything super dangerous when they're little. So like let their skin microbiome do the work as much as possible. Diapers are interesting. So uh, we talked about pads earlier and tampons for women. So women will put several hundred pounds of that into the landfills during their life. Um, the average baby will put several thousand pounds of diapers and uh, oh thousands God. of diapers into landfills. And, just one baby? Yeah. And just like pads uh, and tampons. How many, like, did babies go through what, three or four diapers a day or something? Oh, at the beginning, it's like 12. Whoa. Yeah. Oh my God. And then it spaces out. But newborns, it's like all the time. Wow. Um, and most diapers have plastic in them. So that's on the baby's skin. Most have chlorine in them. And the actual compounds that absorb all the moisture, there's a lot of nasty stuff in that. So thankfully, there's actually some compostable, biodegradable, disposable options on the market now, which are great. Most people don't want a cloth diaper and there's a big water impact there. So there's, again, no perfect solution. But I would just say to the degree possible in budget and lifestyle, choose the more natural compostable plastic-free versions, which is great for the baby and also much better for the planet because that's a big thing. Um, I also think people really stress out about the feeding the baby thing. And they're born with such an amazing natural sense of hunger and satiety that you don't have to really stress about that at all unless there's a health problem going on, especially if you're breastfeeding. Like breastfeed when the baby's hungry and they'll stop nursing when they're done nursing and you will not be able to feed them. Like you cannot feed a newborn that's not hungry. It won't let you. So let the baby keep its natural sense of hunger and don't force the food. And, and also don't force solid food too early. Um, that's something that there's been varied opinions throughout history right now that's really interesting. There's a lot of studies going on involving food allergies because food allergies on the, are on the rise. I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. But one of them is that for a lot of years, they told women 
to avoid allergens while they were pregnant. So the women were not eating peanuts, um, eggs, certain things that they thought their kid could be allergic to because they thought they'd have a higher chance of being allergic. Oh, interesting. Turns out the opposite was true. Lack of exposure was actually making the problem worse. And so now there's some really cool studies going on um, and companies, one's called Ready Set Food. It's a cool company um, that are making scientifically backed studied ways to do early allergen exposure um, in a way that has an 80% reduction in food allergies. So that's another thing I wish oh, I had cool. known. Yeah, we so don't... does the mom do the induced exposure while pregnant or is this to the baby after the baby's born? So both. The consensus oh. right now in science seems to be don't avoid peanuts when you're pregnant unless you have some reason that you have to. Um, unless you're just... paleo, then you don't eat peanuts. <laughs> right. But maybe actually like I would say it might be worth the risk <laughs> to of do it anyway. eating a few right, just right. to expose your immune system so you're passing it to your baby. That's cool. Um, but then things like Ready, Set, Food, they solve the problem once the baby's in that four to eight month range. The research is kind of divided. My default is always exclusively breastfeed till six months if possible. So I wouldn't personally introduce allergens until that point either. But when babies start solid food, these are um, very specifically measured tiny doses that you add to their food of the top allergens. And it basically acclimates their immune system gently. Oh, that's so, so they're cool. less likely to freak out. That's amazing. What a great resource. I wonder if it's good uh, when you're pregnant to eat a bunch of of, uh, of uh, bee pollen. Oh, interesting. I know you know, it's got for a lot like of protein, environmental yeah. allergens, though, I wonder if like you know, so many of the things that people are allergic to are on the plants over there that bees are feeding on, and it seems to me like bee pollen is kind of a concentration of a bunch of allergens in a way. I don't know if that's true at all. It's totally just armchair science, but I wonder if there's anything to that on that note because that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I know they say for people with seasonal allergies to do that. And so I wonder if right. it's a crossover effect if the mom's hmm. immune system can pass it on. That's very interesting. That's cool. Okay, so diapers, food allergies. Oh, breastfeeding. So again, I'm always going to go back to, you know, it's like the saying, what would Jesus do? It's like, what would an, a person 15,000 years ago do is what I was like pre-agriculture, right? So a natural indigenous hunter-gatherer person that lives on the land, do we know how long a mother would breastfeed in nature typically, historically? It depends on the culture. Um, a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes, at least the modern ones we can study, many of them seem to go as much as like four years, which would seem pretty extreme in American culture, but both from a nutritional perspective and a lot of them, to circle back to an earlier topic, use it as a method of spacing kids because when you're exclusively breastfeeding, it's much harder to get pregnant. Most women... There oh, are exceptions, really? but most women don't ovulate when they're exclusively breastfeeding. Oh, So that means like not supplementing with formula and not feeding the baby solid food yet. But most women, that means you get a good six months where you're not going to ovulate because your oh, body's wow. like, okay, we're already feeding one baby. Let's not have another you one hear yet. that mom's is party time. Keep breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so it varies. But in general around the world and historically, it was two years was a minimum, which is like most women don't make it to two years in the US right now. Right. Um, but up to like four and even five years, I've heard. See, because I mean, this is a societal and cultural thing to me. And, I, and I've not known the stats, but intuitively, I feel like a baby should be breastfed for like the first couple of years. Like if you just ask me blank, I just be like, oh, probably yeah, two years. And I've kind of mentioned that to women. They're like, oh, hell no. I'm doing that the bare minimum. Three, four months, I'm out. No more teat, you know? And I'm always thinking, I don't know. I think natural people do it longer, but I've not looked into it. It's just completely based on intuition and how big those babies are. But when you think about our society and cultural norms now, I mean, imagine you're at the local mall and 
I mean, a four-year-old kid is really is big. big yeah. That would be super weird, right? Well, in most cultures, they're probably nursing like once at night or something. It's not oh, like okay. their main food supply. But I, those women, I totally hear and feel that. Like, I actually get vulnerable from it. I despise nursing. Like, I just don't like sitting still. I don't right. like being touched. I'm not like a physical touch person. Yeah. So all the, like, I'm like, I did that for 12 years, sitting still, <laughs> right, nursing babies. Right, it was a long right. 12 years. You um, paid your dues. Yeah. But there's so many benefits to it. Right. Um, but I, I totally hear those women who are like, oh my gosh, I'm it's awful. I'm done. And what about a woman that can't produce milk at all or not enough? What might be the matter there and what might they do about it? I, I had a friend that whose wife had a baby and they were asking me, what's the best formula? And I was like, formula? It's right there in her shirt. They're like, no, she doesn't make any milk. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I've never actually heard of that. Do you know anything about that end of it? Yeah, there are several cases. Um, Dr. Isabella Wentz has some good. She went through that and she, I think she's written about it. Um, there can be things from like insufficient mammary tissue where there's actually a physiological thing going on to certain deficiencies can cause problems in milk expression. A lot of times though, I found... It, it, like get a second opinion would be my advice because a lot of traditional lactation consultants, especially in a hospital, are trying to get moms to like pump and measure or um, to like measure by volume output of the baby. And babies nursing can typically get so much more than if you pump that it's not actually a good measure oh, of that. Right, right. Um, and there's an amazing network of lactation consultants that are really well-versed in this. And so a lot of women, they're able to work with someone like that to see if it's maybe a tongue tie or a lip tie, which is pretty common. What is that? Um, so basically it's a midline defect to go back to the folate issue right, right. where the top of the lip is either stuck too closely to the gums or there's uh, underneath the tongue, it's stuck too tightly. So you probably notice if you lift your tongue, there's like that little stringy piece underneath. Yes, yes. Um, for some babies, that's really tight. So they can't actually move their tongue in the right way oh, to damn. latch on. And it's really painful for the mom. So if you're, oh. if you're nursing and it hurts a lot, like the first couple of days, you, you're, it's a new thing. It'll be sore. But if it hurts a lot and if you're bleeding and if there's blisters... Ow, that happens? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And it's often that there's a tongue or lip tie. So find a functional dentist or a lactation consultant who knows what's going on because it's truly as simple as if they resolve it within five minutes, the baby's nursing totally normal. It's a very drastic thing. Oh, this is good information. God, yeah. I have so much compassion for females. <laughs> Even more so <laughs> now, I'm like, oh my God, what you go through, you guys. Thank you so much. And thank you to my mom. Uh, on that topic, I found out uh, fairly recently that I was not breastfed. And I got to say, I was really disappointed and no guilt to my mom. Like she just, whatever doctors told her, oh yeah, just get this formula or something. God, formula sucks now, most of it that I've heard of. I mean, imagine what it was like in 1970. It was probably a bunch of soy, whatever, you know, who knows what, just really bad stuff. But I've thought about on a few occasions... I wonder if I would have been much smarter. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if I'd have had the good fats and stuff like that. You know, I think I turned out okay. I feel relatively competent, but I can't help but think, oh man, I wonder if I would have had bigger muscles or, <laughs> you know, been smarter, more badass, just more virile in general. And, uh, you know, so we will never know. But I don't think it was because she couldn't produce milk. She just, you know, she's like, eh, why do that? You can just feed them this other stuff or whatever her reason was. But, I did some functional lab testing and they asked me that and they said, well, you, you better check with your mom. I said, I'm sure I was. And she's like, no, you weren't. I was like, what? <laughs> what happened, man? I got robbed. So, okay. Then what about, um, what about, what about, ooh, what about baby monitors? Oh, okay. Interesting. So we're going to have to talk about EMFs. Then. Yes. 
Um, and I will say my view on this is probably semi-controversial. And again, I'm, I, I'll share my experience. But if you want to look at history, for the majority of history, babies slept with their mom for a long time. They weren't in a crib. And I totally understand the value of having them in a crib and not in your bed. But if you look at historically, babies were often with their mom, at least for the first few months, which makes sleep way easier, makes nursing way easier when you're in the same room or the same bed, in which case you don't need a baby monitor. The problem we have now is most baby monitors are either radio or wireless. There's some kind of EMF technology connected to it. And now it's even more than that. I know parents are putting like breathing sensors that are EMF under their babies, putting devices on their babies to measure their breathing. Are you serious? Oh yeah. Oh no, like a Fitbit kind of thing for your baby? Yes. Oh, don't do that moms. Please, please, please. Yeah, it alerts you if your baby like doesn't breathe or gets too (laughs) warm or gets too cold. It's much worse than I thought. Yeah. I was just thinking about the EMFs, like a cordless phone. You know, if we was sitting here and you had an EMF reader, it would be off the charts. And I know baby, I know baby monitors are like that because I've looked into it, but I didn't even know about the next level, the next generation of gnarliness. Yeah. And I, I think it's like... So to me, it's easiest to have the baby in the room and actually in my bed. So most of mine slept in our bed till they were about six months old, just because I didn't sleep. If not, like they wanted to nurse five times during the night, I would have been sitting in their room for four hours in the middle of the night and not slept at all. But also there's some evidence that um, like, because the big thing was you don't want the baby in the bed because of SIDS or you could roll over on them. And from what I've seen, the data doesn't actually support that. There's actually uh, countermeasures in place where the mom's body can like sense if the baby stops breathing and like react and kind of like shake it back into... To work because we're so in tune with the baby and to the point of abandonment issues, like it's kind of odd that you would have this baby living inside of you for nine months and then it comes out and then you're going to put it away for 12 hours a day in its own crib and not attached to you. Like, I actually wonder if that is a trigger for abandonment issues in babies because they're so used to being touched all the time and then they're like literally put away at night. I always am going to go back to ancient peoples and how we got here to where we are, like how we've survived, thrived, like what brought us to this point in evolution. And I have a hard time imagining the human ape mammal having a baby and be like, cool, you go in the other room for a while. It's just not how mammals behave. Right. Like there could be predators out there, but you could sleep in your own tent. Yeah, (laughs) right. It's kind of interesting. You know, I have a friend of mine that designed these... um, baby carriers. Oh God, I'm such a jerk right now because I can't remember the name of them. But one of the main purposes of these carriers, which maybe I'll put in the show notes if I can remember the name. You know, I don't have a baby, so I forgot. Sorry, Chris. Chris Arvon is my friend. I remember his ass's name. But anyway, he designed this baby carrier that uh, is kind of like a shirt. And so it, well, it is your shirt. And so it creates a skin on skin contact. So when you carry your baby around skin and he did all this research on how important it is for that contact and that you really don't want your baby to be separated from that electrostatic kind of sign, you know, uh, electrical and just human love kind of connection. Do you know anything about how important touch is and skin oh on gosh. skin and stuff like that? What There's do you know about so that? so much evidence. I mean, even in NICUs throughout the country now, skin on skin is standard of care almost because oh, really? it actually improves outcome a baby like for a long time like your story they isolated them and like monitored their vitals but it turns out the mom's body is the best thing in the world at getting the baby to the right temperature because you share the oh, heat contact wow. wow yeah yeah and just um so like have you read the book the body electric and- um i'm supposed to have read it yeah okay. it's probably <laughs> if it's not on my bookshelf it's on my like to-do list and Everyone I've interviewed about EMFs and this kind of stuff always refers to it. And I'm always like, oh, yeah, I know that book, but I really don't know it, know it. Okay. But I mean, in short, we know our bodies have a lot of electrical components from mitochondria to our heartbeat. And babies are still developing their nervous system. So having that 
constant contact and movement next to the mom is going to regulate their temperature. It's going to help regulate their nervous system. They're going to be calmer because that's what they're used to. They're hearing your the sounds of your body, which is real, actually really important. Um, people don't realize in utero is very loud. Like when they put sound monitors in there, it sounds like a highway, like because of all the organs and everything. Uh, and then they come out and we're like so quiet and they actually need to be close to you and keep hearing the heartbeat and all oh, those sounds. That's trippy. Yeah. And the whole microbiome piece, your skin has a microbiome as well. So the degree to which your baby's in contact with you, they're still getting re-stimulated to have their the correct microbiome. Breastfeeding does that as well. But there's just like kind of a multifaceted reason that babies should absolutely be connected to their moms for like a good number of months after pregnancy. That's crazy because thinking about if you lay on someone's stomach, like you're cuddling with someone, right? And you, your ears on their belly, it's like, it does sound crazy in there, right? And imagine how loud it is without the layer of skin and right. fascia and everything else on top. Whoa, that's trippy. Uh, for women that can't produce milk or don't want to or can't breastfeed for whatever reason, are there any viable alternatives to breast milk now in terms of formula or camel milk or anything that's biocompatible and has the nutrition density that we're looking for? They're viable, I would say, not great. So camel's milk is interesting. There's some studies on that, people using it by itself or fortified with things that like iron and different things that babies need in higher doses at younger ages, it's least likely to be allergenic. So I, I hear from a lot of allergy parents whose babies are allergic to both dairy and soy, but can tolerate sometimes camel milk. So that can be a good option. Any of the other formulas are unfortunately like largely a processed food. Like if it comes out of a right. can and it's dried, it's not going to be the same. you have to reconstitute it, right? Exactly. Like a powdered milk, essentially, kind of vibe. And, and it's almost like, like if you just look at the nutrition aspect alone, they're able to mimic the macros and the fat content and the protein in formula. But that would be like, okay, so you can just eat this diet that's like dextrose and coconut oil and whatever, and we can mimic your macros and you'll be fine. You're not getting variation in your gut. So breast milk is constantly changing and actually reacting to the baby. Oh, wow. So there's like really cool studies of actually... So when you're the baby's nursing, there's micro inputs of the baby saliva interacting with the mom's mammary ducts and she's creating immune cells and everything else the baby needs right then based on the what? baby's needs. And there's all these oligosaccharides and things that feed the gut bacteria in the gut, not just the baby. So we created the like the <laughs> macros the baby needs, but we can't recreate all of that. Right. So unfortunately, no, but there are now like you can do homemade ones. There's homemade formula variations that you can do using camel milk or using other types of milk. And those are at least going to get you closer to the micronutrient content and some of those factors. Truly, I think like nature design breast milk for babies. So it's kind of the best option, but there are some good ones. Like if you can't breastfeed, you do not need to feel guilty because there are at least some good options to look at. Is there anywhere where a woman could go get breast milk from another woman? Like we would have in a a roving tribe of 50 or 60 people or something? Totally. I mean, are there like milk banks or something oh like that? Oh my gosh. It's such a taboo thing and it shouldn't be because it's very natural, but yeah. there are both milk banks, milk donors. Um, so you can buy it. Sometimes women, um, it's I think it's really heroic. Women who have lost babies will pump oh, and donate man. their milk because they still make milk and they Whoa. view it as like a gift. And so like those women to me are heroes and that's amazing. Oh my God. They're going to heaven like big time. They're getting a special division of heaven. <laughs> Super awesome people. With a spa. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but um, so there's definitely those options. Unfortunately, they're largely cost prohibitive. Like breast milk is very expensive. Oh. Um, I know actually people personally who have hired wet nurses or hired people when oh, they could nurse. Oh, wet nurse. That's what that is. Uh, to nurse their baby directly because then you get all of the actual right. stimulation of nursing and all that too. Um, that's so fascinating what you're saying about 
the the baby giving the the woman's body feedback and then the milk formula essentially or the recipe kind of being altered by the feedback that is so fascinating things like that is why i believe in god like <laughs> i don't know how you can be an atheist when you hear something like how is that who made that up you know it's just like really that's an accident that's just a random oh yeah it just worked out that way i mean there has to be some divine order that's crazy yeah really fascinating stuff okay and then what about um when it comes to the actual raising of the kids so you know we get out of the baby phase i like how we're kind of taking this this journey here and uh you know i see people like keeping their kids from playing in the dirt and being overly protective of them and stuff. And you mentioned earlier how, you know, you live in a really safe place and, you know, your kids are able to go ride their bikes and play. And I remember when I was a kid, I mean, this is going back generationally, I guess it would have been the seventies. I mean, I just ran wild out of nature. I was gone all day. We weren't worried about, you know, being snatched up in a creepy van or something. I was just out in the woods and playing with snakes and bugs and eating dirt. And I think I'm a better man for it. So what do we do in terms of helping kids to play and get acquainted with their environment and things like that? And then as they start to get older, allowing them some freedom to go interface with nature and be out in the world Um, as a real person. I have two posts that are both kind of soapbox posts for me on this. One is called Why Kids Need Dirt. And the other one is called Overprotected Childhood. And I think there's, there's two sides to this. I think through that phase of in the US of the hygiene hypothesis, we got like really scared of germs and we started sterilizing everything. And it's had a really negative impact long-term. So our environments, you've probably talked about this and written about this. We're using antibacterial soaps. We're taking too many antibiotics. We're actually like, in a sense, germ deficient because our bodies are meant to interact with those things. And especially kids. Like if you go back to nature and tribes, if you put a child on the ground, they will eat dirt. And it will happen all the time. And that they just was, automatically do it. They put everything in their mouth. And then parents are like, no, no, Johnny, stop. Yeah. And now we like all pay money to take these like spore-based, really awesome probiotics that they had to like figure out how to recreate because we've lost them in the dirt. Like, or we could just let kids eat dirt when they're babies too. But I think the bigger factor is because dirt still exists. It's that parents aren't letting their kids go play in it as much. And I know from a lot of the parents I hear about, there's so many fears when it, I mean, obviously you've created this child, you love them so much and you don't want anything to happen to them. And that's super, super logical. But I think we've taken that to a, such an extreme that we're actually harming our kids by trying to keep them safe. And there's layers to that. So I've interviewed, for instance, um, neuroscientists and occupational therapists who are saying our kids' vestibular systems are suffering and they're not fully developing because they're not climbing trees and hanging upside down and falling down and balancing. like That's how kids actually develop parts of their brain. And it's oh, wow. not happening. And so because we're keeping them inside, they're on screens. And of course, there's all the problems associated with that. It's interesting when you look at the statistics, most parents are... One of their bigger concerns is that their children are going to be abducted. And I'm a math person. So statistically, if you actually look at the numbers, your child would have to stand in your front yard for 750,000 years statistically to get abducted because it's so rare. Wow. But because of the news and we're seeing the worst case scenario all the time, we assume that if our kids are outside, they're going to get abducted and, you know, sold into sex slavery or hit by a car immediately, all these things. And it's just not actually true. But what has happened in its place is our kids aren't learning important psychological lessons about risk development and finding their own boundaries or working through social interactions correctly because we're protecting them from all of that. Like, I don't know what your experience, but when I was a kid, we were outside playing all the time. We would get in fights with other kids occasionally, not like 
fist fights. I didn't as much, but you would argue with kids and then you would have to work through that. And you realize, hey, I was actually being an asshole in that situation. And then you learn right. social and kids aren't even right. doing that because parents are engineering <laughs> their social dynamics and engineering their playtime right. and playgrounds are safe. And so they, they're not getting these experiences that correctly develop their brain and their vestibular system and their normal boundaries and human interaction. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, they're, the kids now are living in a Nerf world, you know. I mean, I notice even, I don't know what, if it's Generation X or which one they are, I can't keep track of them. I always think any anyone that's like younger than me, I think they're a millennial. <laughs> I always get corrected. No, that was the certain era. You're totally off. So I don't know what they are, but I have noticed just culturally and looking at social media that um, people are very sensitive now emotionally, you know, and uh, all these safe spaces and PC culture and everyone policing the thought police and the speech police and the language police. And now Microsoft just came out with a word that's going to correct your speech that you type and make it politically correct. No, I'm serious. That just happened. It's a real thing. And wow. I'm thinking, God, these poor kids, everyone gets their damn feelings hurt. So we're, we're like raising a really fragile generation. I mean, aside from just going out and playing and the physical parts of like, hey, if I do that, I'm going to fall down and it hurts. But just the psychological and the, you know, the social part of learning how to be freaking resilient. You know, the problems that our kids, I'm sounding like total old man right now, but it's just true. The thing is that I hear people complain about, like, you hurt my feelings, I'm triggered. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I used we, to get my ass beat when I was a kid and like, I'm fine. You know what I mean? Well, you like, could we call don't me have every a name right in a book. To not be offended or to not be exposed to viewpoints that we might disagree with. Yeah. Um, and we've taken a different approach to that. It's actually largely one of the reasons we homeschool is because I saw this happening and, and we're seeing this generation of kids that's kind of the first one that grew up in a social media world. And so I actually think this problem is going to get a lot worse because social media kind of feeds into that like over like that extreme viewpoint, hyper saturated mentality. And it's, yeah. I think it's really dangerous. Outrage culture, I think they call it. Yeah. And it's, it seems to be only getting worse. I don't Who's actually the see biggest really. victim contest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for us, like we tried to be really intentional of what are the actual values we want to impart to our kids and what does that look like and how do you teach it? And so um, we realized that was things like developing a high tolerance for risk and for failure. I think like one of the lessons of my life has been failure is the best teacher. It's wonderful. But school teaches kids not to fail because when you fail, you get one wrong, you get an X and it's bad. And I had to work through that actually because I was a great student. And like, if I got a 98, I would freak out because I didn't win the game. And I'm like, that's not teaching me to actually work through failure. That's an, actually a terrible life lesson. And so we try to be very intentional about we want to create a tolerance for failure. We want to create like not like a risk aversion. We want them to be able to take risk and and entrepreneurship is a big value for us. And so how do we create these things? And for us, that meant homeschooling because I, I didn't feel like a traditional school system really curated those values. And it led to more of that like outrage culture where everybody gets offended all the time. So we have a very alternative looking homeschool with them. And I also am very mathematical. So I looked at what are the actual tangible skills they need if they wanted to take the SAT and ACE it, if they wanted to get a job in certain areas. And then I kind of ad 20 that. I'm like, they don't need oh, to sit here so cool. and do worksheets for eight hours a right. day sitting in a chair, which is terrible for them oh my God. to do this. Like, how do we actually impart the skills in the most efficient way possible and then spend the rest of our time teaching them how to start businesses and to manage finances Amen. and practical life skills like changing a tire, like things they might actually need to do one day. Oh, that's so awesome. I mean, I love my mom, but why weren't you my mom, Katie? <laughs> or my parents. I remember even as a really little kid sitting in school and not to be precocious or 
you know, think that I'm smart, but I honestly have the memory of sitting in school going, this is stupid. <laughs> you know, it's like, why are we doing this? I hated it. And then having done a bit of research, not tons, but like looking at where our current school programming actually came from. Yeah. And it's not really been updated since the 20s or whatever it is when the beginning of the industrial revolution and our whole school curriculum is built to make factory workers. Like all of the training that we get in public schools is to make us sit in a chair, shut up, do as we're told so that we then go out and work in corporate America and be a cog in the wheel. We're not like, we're not taught creatively and the elimination of all the art and music programs mm-hmm. and all this stuff. I mean, it's crazy. We're churning out freaking vegetables for the most part out of our schools. It's terrifying. I'm really hopeful that education is the next field that's going to be disrupted. I, I mean, I think we need that drastically, yeah. but you're so right. It's And even more so, we're facing this now question of, you know, is AI going to take over and our computers going to replace people? And so thinking through that for our kids, I was like, what can... What is not possible to outsource to computers? And that goes back to the creativity piece and critical thinking and keeping those human elements that get trained out in school. School doesn't really teach you to want to think critically because you're supposed to follow the rules. There isn't a lot of space. You get in trouble if you think critically. Exactly. When I was in school, if I offered an alternate way to (laughs) do something, it was like, you're going to the principal's office, shut up you know, speak when you're told to speak kind of thing. And sometimes I wasn't even being a bad kid. I was just having fun and being creative and sharing ideas. And why don't, why do we have to sit over here? Look, there's more room over there. Shut up. Go why to the are they office. sitting at all? We don't have chairs in our homeschool. Like oh, that's so we have cool. surf trainers and balance boards. Really? And, oh yeah. Oh, that's rad. Um, but also like the, the, I think that's the piece. Um, and we thought really hard about how do you actually facilitate this? How do you, maintain because kids are born with creativity and they're born thinking critically. They ask why about everything. And I think they have an innate ability to connect the dots and see patterns adults don't see. So I was like, how do we not train that out of them? And then how do we foster that? So one thing um, we do every morning, we start school with them watching three TED Talks on completely unrelated topics. Because, oh my God, that's so dope. <laughs> well, babies, wow. they're born pattern recognizers. So when you give them something where there's not actually a pattern, their brain's going to try to find a pattern. I'm like, so maybe your kid watches a thing about like pollution in the ocean and robotics and I don't know, mushrooms and fungi. And he or she figures out how to design a fungus that's going to help remove plastic from the ocean, which is a massive problem that we're facing. It's all those damn diapers. Exactly. Diapers and, and tampon applicators and condoms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And so what about, you know, you as this successful entrepreneur, um, you know, unintentional entrepreneur that's now got people working for you and you have this whole organization. How do you find the time to homeschool? Because I, I, when I mention this to women, like, hey, you ever notice the school system is basically churning out a bunch of degenerates, useless (laughs) jellyfish. No, I'm just kidding. No, not all schools. Of course, I'm sure there are good schools and God bless our teachers, man. Teachers, police, military, moms, like much respect. But I've mentioned this and I was like, oh God, no, I have a career. Like, dude, I'm not going to sit at home all day with my kid. Like I need to get them out of the house. I'm not going to do that. Like, how do you find time to be awesome and make money and be, you know, serving all of these people and also be like, hey kids, we're going to watch these TED Talks and do the homeschooling thing. 
Well, I think you're right to echo what you said. Teachers are amazing. And most of them are as frustrated with the system as parents are and as kids are. Like they're in they're, constraints they're as well. They're a clog. A, what is it? A clog? A clog a, in the wheel? Yeah, they're yeah. one too. And they're adult, you know, as adults, I think smart enough to know they are. So it's got to be super frustrating for them. Yeah. And there are amazing teachers that are innovating and really yeah. helping the system. So I just want to recognize that. But to me, it's all about systems. So I actually had this pivot moment a few years ago where I was stressed all the time at home. And in business, like as I started adding stuff to that, I just made systems because that's my default. So I had spreadsheets and like operating procedures and checklists that ran the business. And the business was always great. And then at home, I was always stressed. And I felt like I was just like juggling plates and half of them were breaking. And I was just like yelling at my kids. And I kept thinking like, why am I so together in business? And then at home, I'm just like falling apart. And I realized it's because I was managing my business with systems and goals and objectives, deliverables, KPIs, things that you need in business. And at home, I was trying to manage all of it in my head and fly by the seat of my pants and do everything for everyone. And so basically overhauled my life and created systems in the home that like to solve for the variable of reduced stress, which gave me all this bandwidth. It meant getting my kids involved. So now one of our core values is that we don't do anything for them that they can do themselves, which means even our five-year-old up does her own laundry. Because she can't. Oh, that's amazing. But I know a lot of moms who do like their teenagers' laundry. Right, and I'm like, well, right. no wonder you're stressed. Right. Um, or they get up and cook their own breakfast. So I actually sleep in sometimes, which is like shocking that that wow. happens with kids. But also for us, we tried to really integrate education and real life versus making them separate things. And so we do have school hours and they work through their things they have to get out of the way. But as an example, for instance, our oldest is going to finish most of his high school work by about 13, 14. So he's within a year of that. And then they have a contract with us before they can have a car, which they'll have to pay for, but I won't sign off on their driver's license or a cell phone. They have to have a profitable business for a year. And so, oh, that's so cool. they go from school into like an incubator where they create a right. business plan. We invest in them. We like, they understand financials because we thought, how can we teach all of these actual life skills in a way that's fun for them? And that teaches consistency and like risk evaluation and financial savvy. Like all of those skills we wanted to impart to them, we could teach through teaching them how to run a business. And then hopefully also be giving them a life skill or a business they could leave home with and start with kind of a, the first step for Oh my God, that's like Lemonade Stand 10.0. That's so cool. (laughs) You know, one thing my dad did that was neat, and of course it wasn't neat at the time, it used to really piss me off, but you know, he was well off, at least, you know, compared to most of the parents that I knew when I was a kid. And uh, I used to always be annoyed that he wouldn't just spoil me. I saw other kids that their parents had money like that and they got whatever they wanted. And I'd be like, God, why isn't my dad like that? But he used to do this thing where... He and still, I mean, even as an adult, he's not extravagant. He's like one of those low key wealthy dudes, you know, who does it like you'd never know it. He drives a truck, he's just chill, he's not ostentatious like that, which I respect. However, when I was a kid, if I wanted like a dirt bike, he'd say, Dad, buy me a dirt bike, please, please, please. He's like, okay, I'll tell you what, you got to work and earn the money. And once you're halfway there, I'll meet you halfway. So if my little motorcycle was a thousand bucks, I would have to save up 500 bucks and he'd give me the rest. Sometimes, but not even all the time. Sometimes I'd have to get it myself. And it used to piss me off when I was a kid because I knew we had the money. I'm like, but, but, but you're not going to miss it. You own a horse, you know, like horses are really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) The most expensive habit maybe next to a boat. Uh, But it did help me in that eventually, like I told you in our previous conversation, I left high school. I was like the, the 
literally the day I turned 18 and I could legally not have a truancy officer chase me around and take me back to school. I was like, peace, deuces, never coming back, never did, never will. But one thing that that did instill in me was a work ethic. Like I'm a hard ass worker. When something needs to get done, I, I get it done. If I want something bad enough, I will work for it. And I don't know if I would have had that if my dad's like, oh, Lukey, you want a motorcycle? Sure. You know, so that was the start. But an even further step would be, hey, you want that money? Let me teach you how to start a business and manage your money and save up and teach me about interest and debt and all this kind of stuff, right. which a lot of those things, unfortunately, I had to learn on my own, you know? So that's rad. Have you ever thought about writing a book or creating some kind of online course about like how to homeschool and like document the systems and processes that you've developed? Yeah, actually, it kind of happened organically. I haven't published it yet, but it was as I worked through it, I just, it all went into a Google Doc and it just kind of flowed. Oh, it was cool. the first book I didn't feel like I had to write. It just kind of flowed out. But yeah, I think that's an important point you made too about just not giving our kids too much stuff. Like I, we prioritize give experiences, but don't give things. And and having to actually work for something. That's something that I really struggled with, um, especially when like we became financially okay. Like realizing we both became kind of who we were because we had a tougher childhood. We had to work hard. We didn't have a lot of money. And so how do we like not make our kids entitled? And how do we teach them work ethic and all these skills even if we do have money. And and so that was like part of it for us is, you know, making sure that they're still working for things and also realizing like our challenges shaped us. So our challenges in childhood made us the hard workers that we are today. But as a parent, you can't in good conscience make your kid's life horrible. So for us, the variable we solve, we travel, like not luxury travel, but travel, travel, which is in its nature challenging, especially with kids. So we <laughs> build in that challenge and the, those lessons organically that way. That's cool. You know, it's funny when I think about having kids, that's one of the things that makes me nervous because I love to travel, but it's really hard for me. Like I get super worn out from flying and I just get tweaked and I'm like, oh my God, I'll be on an airplane and see someone with like two young kids going, how do you guys do this? You're nuts, you know? So well, I guess you've proven if you have six kids and you still travel, like it can be done. It can be done. Yeah. And then that's cool. So you kind of turn that into learning lessons for the kids and giving them experiences. And that's one thing I, you know, I have to say I'm grateful for too with, with my dad um, primarily is there were a lot of really cool trips and I was exposed to different cultures. And, you know, we spent a lot of time in Mexico and stuff when I was a kid and I got to see like, oh shit, not everyone is as lucky as I am or whatever, just, you know, learning different languages and stuff. So I think travel is super important for kids and you can give them gifts that way without them becoming entitled little pricks too, which is always a plus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, man, um, I think we've covered just about everything I wanted to cover. I had an exhaustive list because this is, again, a topic that I, I mean, I'll probably have more podcasts on, on this topic and similar ones. And so there was a lot to cover there. And I just, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you being such a great mom and like inspiring so many moms and dads, even I'm sure, and doing the work that you do. Because as I said in the beginning, like this is the stuff that matters is really instilling values and empowering young people because they're going to be the people that are taking care of our asses when we're old. And they have steward, a lot of problems to fix. Yeah, stewards of the planet that they're inheriting and all of the garbage that we're leaving them with, you know? So I think it's really cool that you focused on this and I encourage everyone to follow your work. And uh, I've learned a lot. There's all sorts of things that I think I know about. And then I talk to someone like you and I'm like, oh, snap, I never thought of it that way. Very cool. <laughs> Especially the 
custom breast milk thing. Like who knew? A lot of things like that. So um, you've taught me tons here today. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life or your work that you'd like to share with our audience that they might be able to go learn from? That's a great question. Um, Off the cuff. So I would say in my early life, Mother Teresa was an influence because of one particular quote, which is that you can do no great things, only small things with great love. And so to circle back to something we talked about earlier, I think like that is the key, like love and kindness. And so it's a good just centering reminder. That's amazing. Say that quote again. You can do no, no great things, only small things with great love. Wow. Um, and I, and it's cool. also just a good reminder of like, it just, I feel like that centers me a lot. Recently, I've been reading a lot of Marcus Aurelius, who I feel like was way before his time and a lot of the stuff he says. And the last three years for me actually have been quite the journey where earlier in life, I felt like a lot of things were very black and white. And then at some point during adulthood, I realized like, if I actually think I believe these things, then I should not only be willing to challenge them, I owe them to be challenged to make sure I'm right before I am willing to die on this hill. So I made a spreadsheet of all the things I thought I believed and I challenged myself point by point. Um, oh my God, that's so on those funny. Topics. And I'm left with many fewer things on the list now. I, I completely agree with you. I think there is a higher being we're connected all through that. And I think kindness and love is our highest calling. Like those things I know to be true. Um, but I feel like I've almost become more stoic in that time of just realizing right. it's, it's about the less, not the more so much and um, and being challenged by that. So I've just found a lot of solace in Marcus Aurelius of late. Wow, that's cool. I don't know much about him. I mean, it's a name that obviously is thrown around uh, a lot in historical context and influence, but I'm not it's something I've not read yet. So that's cool. Well, it's funny. I find I get the most inspiration from him when it comes to social media because I don't know if this is your experience, but there are some like relatively mean people on social media that say some relatively mean things all the time on social media. And I used to get so worked up from those things. Oh, right. And he was obviously not talking about social media a couple thousand years ago, but so much of his quotes and his teachings have been helpful to me in like detaching from needing to care about other people's opinions or even going a step further and like getting the ego out of the way and realizing like, am I being defensive because there's actually a lesson in this for me? And like, could they have a point? Totally. Um, Or I love one of his quotes, which was like something along the lines of, um, you know, when someone points out your fault, don't go into defending it, you know, let it go and say like, oh, if you knew my other faults, you wouldn't have only said those. Like just be (laughs) detached from it. Um, That's really funny. I interviewed David Wolf one time and he's very, you know, David Wolf is, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, big superfood hunter, uh, former vegan. I don't think, is it, I think he eats ghee now. But uh, anyway, I interviewed him a couple of times and he's someone that gets trolled a lot because he, you know, he's like a flat earther. I mean, he's, he says some super out there shit and people get super triggered by him. And so I've always had kind of compassion, like, God, these people are so mean to this guy. And I asked him, about social media trolls. And I said, you know, how does that feel? How do you deal with it? Is it doesn't that, isn't that hard? Cause I'm observing you really get beat on a lot. And he's like, he said the greatest answer, something to the effect of he said, Oh, Luke, when that happens, man, I just, you know, I feel the pain in that person. And I just know that they've been hurt and they don't know how to hold it. And so they're just, they're trying to offload some of that hurt onto me. And I just have compassion for them. And I just feel for them because someone has to be in a lot of pain to take the time to go on their phone or on their computer and spend time and energy trying to hurt someone else. I mean, you can imagine what's going on in their human experience in order to have the energy to do that and really direct that towards someone. So I just send them unconditional love and I just bless them. And I was like, damn, that's pretty good. You know, it was a good lesson for me because 
I was still at the place then, like, oh, really? Mother effort, I'll wrong. show you. Da, 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 you know, and I'm typing back. And, you know, I think I had largely gotten out of that. But yeah. Yeah, it's like that quote, hurt people, hurt people. And exactly. it's, you have to remember that. And also yeah. that um, I know it floats around a lot on social media, but that like other people's opinion of me is none of my business. Right. And because yeah. you're giving them power too. That's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like if I'm gonna have a bad day because somebody thinks my podcast sucks or whatever. I mean, there's a million things people have critiqued me for. And most of them were true. <laughs> right. You know what like, I mean? Like some of the the feedback I've gotten on the podcast that's negative, like bad reviews and stuff. I'll read it. And I'm like, you try starting a podcast, you know, and then I get like pissed. And then I look and I go, actually, they have a point. Yeah, I like, do do that a lot or whatever the thing is. It's true. Some of the time I am actually guilty of the thing I'm being accused of. Not yeah. always, but more than anything, I go back to that thing of like, God, their brain must just hurt really bad. Because I've been yeah. like that. You know, I used to be really mean to people and it's just because I was hurt. Yeah. I just couldn't stand it. I had to like get some of the hurt off me and put it on other people in a vain attempt to try to alleviate some of my own suffering. You know, so I get it. And that like segues in. I think my third one for now would be Brene Brown. I know like her oh work is so God, popular right her. now. Yeah. But one of her tips, which has been really helpful is to have, um, I don't think she called it this, but like a shit list. Like people who you actually give a shit about their opinion. And it's for me like five people. <laughs> and if they're not on the list, they're not able to offend me. Oh my God, that's amazing. So I actually have that in my that office. That is added. amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, my list is, yeah, I could think of like five people off the top of my head that like if they were disappointed in me or not approving of my choices, I would take serious consideration to that. Um, that's really great. Yeah, Brene Brown, she's awesome. She's on my dream list of guests too. Now she keeps... It's annoying when you find someone and they keep getting more and more popular and you're like, ah, grasping. Yes. Ah, I had an email from her publicist and now like we're way... She's way out of my league, you know? So yeah, she's one of my top ones too. Uh, Esther Perel too. It's really great. She's another would, one. Yeah, her books Amazing. have been really fascinating as part of that like challenging every part of life has been really fascinating to read her as well yeah she's on my dream list too cool awesome well listen if you snatch them up you tell them about me and i'll tell them about you and maybe we'll both end up with them someday deal all right well thanks so much for joining me on the show uh in closing where can people find you your social media websites anything you want to promote shout out it's easy it wellness mama everywhere so wellnessmama.com wellness mama podcast and wellness mama on every social media you got media. those on all the social you're so lucky <laughs> i remember when i was uh, when i first got on instagram someone else had my name and i ended up contacting the kid he was in the uk i was like dude i'll give you 50 bucks to give me my name and then he googled me and he's like nah you kind of you're kind of more famous than me give me 300 and i was like okay done i got my name but still like my stupid twitter's mr luke story like there was a couple i couldn't get so congrats well, the on that funny story of that is Originally, I wanted the name wellnessmom.com, but it was a premium domain and we couldn't afford it. Oh. And so I used mama as a filler because I was like, okay, it's close enough. Right. And um, so that stuck. And we actually now own wellnessmom.com. Oh, that's funny. But I don't actually love the word mama in general. Like I, I like it now. It's endearing, but right. my kids don't call me that. Um, right. And I think The Atlantic wrote a whole article about how this generation is reclaiming the word mama. And all, and they used me as an example. And I'm like, no, I just couldn't afford oh, the domain. That's funny, really? <laughs> but it's wellness mama everywhere. I think that's it's going to stick. That's funny because I don't ever think of that word mama as like calling your mom mama like I always called my mom mom but mm-hmm. I think of it like yo mama like hey mama it's like a like a slang like an endearing term for a woman like a hot mama hey mama like <laughs> something that would be in a blues song or something like that like I don't think of it as like you actually call your mom mama so if you're a kid and you do that call her whatever just love her and be good to her we got a good one right here thank you so much for joining me on the show thank you 
Okay, you moms and pops, did you guys learn something or what? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go make some babies. I mean, not like that. I'm just, oh, wow, how inappropriate. Just a married woman, guys. Get your head out of the gutter. No, but seriously, uh, very inspiring way to approach parenting and birth and all of the things we discussed with Katie. I'm so stoked that there's someone like her in the world having such a positive influence on people that either have kids or are planning on having kids. Because as discussed in the episode and in the intro prior to the conversation, I mean, the babies popping out right now are going to be the ones taking care of our asses when we're old. You know, if you're like in your 40s or 50s-ish, um, I think. I don't know. The math's a little hazy at the moment. But you know what I mean, right? These little humans between, you know, one and five feet tall, maybe, um, are the ones that are really going to shape the future. So uh, I think it's important that we do it right. And we're paying attention to things like uh, what we feed them and what we feed ourselves and our environment and our lighting and um, social connection and all of the things that go into raising our young. You know, we're really at an unprecedented time in history now where we really do live so disconnected from one another and from a sense of community and absolutely disconnected from Mother Earth from Gaia, from the land, the water, the air, the sea, you know, all of the things that um, went into making us what we are as a species. And so we kind of have to um, reverse engineer some of these things like birth and the foods that we eat and how we interact with one another in our environment. And I'm so excited that there's a place to go like Wellness Mama's podcast and the wellnessmama.com, really good information. I often just will Google something that I want to know about health and her site pops up, which is really cool. Usually be her or uh, Joe Mercola's site. And uh, there's really good information out there. So for someone like me that's been into the health world for so long and even both my parents were kind of health nuts too and doing all the supplements and stuff, even when I was a little kid, uh, you know, this stuff was very fringe and I just love that Katie's taking this to the mainstream and that you have people that um, would normally perhaps not be into alternative healing or um, eating organic or avoiding GMOs or becoming knowledgeable about EMFs, etc. can now go to Katie as a trusted source. So if you ever hear this, Katie, it was really fun hanging out with you and I can't wait to do it again. If you're a new listener to the show, welcome. If you're still listening to my voice right now, you're already a diehard, yo. And if you're an old school listener to the Lifestylist podcast and you're still with me at this point in the show, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And you know, I always say that when I'm on the show, but especially when I do these outros, because it's such a, um, it feels like such an accomplishment to deliver another episode that I think is going to really add value to your life. And if you're hearing me at this point, I know that it's added value because you're still here. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I get to do what I do. I mean, it's crazy. It wasn't so many years ago. I was someone that would be reading how to make bone broth on Katie's site, not even knowing who she was or anything. Just like, oh man, these guys have some great information. And now Katie's chilling in my podcast studio at my house. We're hanging out, shooting the shit, exchanging ideas. And more than anything, um, sharing those ideas with as many people as we can. Speaking of sharing those ideas with many people, there's one thing that you can really do to help support the show and if you're a regular, you know, I always ask for this. Get ready for a drum roll, please. If you could share this episode with a couple of your friends, you know, if you know someone who's pregnant or someone that just had a kid or someone that's looking to have kids or whatever the case may be, I just think there's a lot of value in this. 
And um, of course, I want to grow my podcast and get bigger and better guests. Not necessarily that, you know, more well-known guests are the better ones, but there's a lot of people I want to get on the show. And the more downloads I have, um, you know, the better team that I can have and the better podcast I can produce. And ultimately, the higher quality uh, show in general I can deliver to you. So, you know, if you're unable to get to lukestory.com forward slash store and, uh, you know, support what I'm doing here uh, by buying things through the links in my store. Of course, I don't sell anything. I just link out. You get discounts. I get a commission on some of the products that I have an affiliate relationship with. Uh, you can do that. But if, you know, like budget's tight or you don't want to buy supplements or biohacking technology or whatever, and you're feeling great on the Natch, good for you. Uh, but it's wonderful if you can text this or screen grab it and put it on Instagram or share it on Facebook or whatever the case may be, because um, I find so many listeners now to the show that are new uh, found it through their friends and family. So very easy way to support. Now, if you want to dive deeper, you can go to alaturanaturals.com where you can get all of the stuff that I use on my skin. Now, not trying to toot my own horn here. Trust me. When I look in the mirror, I got to be honest, my, my eyes immediately go to the things that I don't like about the meat suit that I'm walking around in. I see wrinkles. I see receding hairline. I see a gut that I've been trying to get rid of since I was like 32 and it just doesn't go away. Maybe I need to call Ben Greenfield or one of my fitness buddies and be like, I've had it. Point being, um, I don't think I'm particularly in love with myself. But one thing that I don't um, really criticize myself for is just generally the, the look of my skin. And I think that's due to two things, to be honest. Well, I go out in the sun constantly, but I use sun recovery products from Alatura Naturals. I mean, they're just, their products in general just do that. I don't think they have like a specific sun recovery um, product, but they're just the most badass, uh, you know, personal care, lotions, oils, all this kind of stuff, the clave mask. They're just badass. And I think a combination of that and using the Juve Red Light Therapy religiously for the past couple of years is really been pretty good to my skin. I mean, for a guy that's creeping up on 50, I'm, I'm doing okay. So whether you're under 50 or over 50, you definitely want to check out Alatura Naturals to take care of your skin. And that goes out to men and women. Um, speaking of women, his products are great. His, I mean, my friend Andy, who owns Alatura, um, products are great for stretch marks too. By the way, ladies, if you had a couple twins or quadruplets or whatever in there and you got some marks on the old uh, tum-tum, Andy's stuff could probably fix it. If you want to save 20% and get free shipping in the U.S., just go to alituranaturals.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST. While you're at it, pick up a Juve, man. Get down with some photo biomodulation, some red light therapy. You can go to juve.com forward slash Luke, enter the code Luke at checkout, and apparently you get some kind of little bonus gift. I'm not even clear what it is at this point, but people keep ordering the damn red light things because I get I get the reports on sales. They seem to be doing well. I, I have right now, <laughs> it's ridiculous, sitting in my studio, I have the old school Jew panel hanging on the door just in case I can't get out to my Zen den, my biohacking uh, you know, um, cottage, as it were. And then I have this new unit that I don't think is out yet and I can't talk about. It's kind of smallish, kind of looks like an iMac computer. And then I have the little Jew Go that I keep up in my bedroom. And I um, do isolated treatments on a certain uh, body part that's related to the bedroom. And that boosts testosterone. It's crazy town. Super dope. And then, um, yeah, so that's juve.com forward slash Luke. Enter the code Luke and get hooked up. And you can go to foursigmatic.com, the lifestylist. 
enter the code, the lifestylist and save 15%. So thank you so much to our sponsors. More than anything, thank you to our guests and listeners like you. I truly appreciate it. And don't forget, I'll be back with you on Tuesday for our sleep special, Hacking Hibernation and Biohacking the Bedroom with Todd Youngblood. If you're someone who struggles with sleep, you got to check that out. So subscribe to the show so that it gets magically and automatically downloaded to your device or computer. See you Tuesday. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.